Hey guys, it's Kendra. And this is Jessica. And you're listening to Lucid Lab. So we're one day before Valentine's Day. It's not a big holiday for me, except for I give my kids some candy and I tell Drew that I love him, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even going to be in town for Valentine's Day. I'm actually out. But it's a holiday, so we'll (laughs) talk about it, I guess, on here. Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day to everyone and happy birthday to my little sister, Lydia. Happy birthday. She's a big fan of this show. She is. Our biggest, maybe. Yes, maybe. She comments a lot and we appreciate it. And it's also going to be her daughter's birthday this month as well. So happy birthday to my sweet niece Malaya. Happy birthday. So I have a story to share because this is just always my luck every time I have a car that's I don't know less than a year old. So I bought a new car in March of last year. So I've almost made it nine months and nothing has happened to it. And then I went out to dinner in Denver last weekend and just parked in the downtown area, went to a restaurant, met some friends. Elizabeth was with me. I had driven and we get in the car and I just start driving and we're driving home and my windshield was dirty. So I went to wipe my windshield and when I used the spray and the windshield wipers went this little piece of paper came off oh no you got a ticket that was my thought but we were going too fast I didn't get it and then the next day I walked out to my car and I was like why is my license plate crooked and I looked (gasps) down and somebody had like fucking rammed the back of my car like my whole bumper is completely busted who left you a number oh my god so it wasn't a hit and run I mean, somebody tried to do the right thing. My guess is I was in a place where you parallel park. So it was probably somebody bad at parallel parking. But yeah, my bumper is completely fucked up. It's broken. And I have one of those cars that has the sensors when you back up. Mm -hmm. And so now my car, every time I put it in reverse, makes this horrible noise because there's stuff. It probably broke a sensor or I don't know. I just noticed it right now when I came over to your house again. And it's it's just so frustrating because this is the second time I've had this exact thing happen. I got a hit and run in downtown Denver with my other car right Uh. after I got it like five years ago. (laughs) Same thing. Somebody backed into my car. They didn't leave a note and it was a true hit mm, and run. Yeah. And I just found out the next day I was like, why is my back of my car all messed up? Yeah. So, uh, it's just frustrating. Most annoying right now is just that beeping every time I put my car into reverse. That would drive me nuts. Thank God my car still lets me back up because some cars won't let you back my, up at all. My car would not let I me I remember back you up. telling me about yeah. that and I was like, what would I do? Like I couldn't drive anywhere or also now I'm going to just take it for granted and I hope I don't hit anything. <laughs> <laughs> because I it just know. Beeps. Yeah. Anyways, I called around and apparently body shops are backed up. Like they didn't even have time for estimates until like a month out. Oh, wow. So hopefully I'll get it fixed by springtime. But I think that is kind of a curse of new cars, though, because that's happened twice to me as well. Yeah. I had a brand new car within three days. I got hit. <laughs> not my fault. Yeah. This guy was not paying attention. Everybody was stopped at a red light and he's like, oh, I don't see any of the cars in front of me. And, and he tried to stop and he hit me at like 30 miles an hour. Thankfully, I swerved out of the way and I didn't hit the person in front of me. And then my mom was driving my car one day, the one I have now, when I got it brand new. And this teenager just, instead of the brake, she hit the gas pedal. Yep. She said. (laughs) Just, you know, it's one of those things. It's like the curse of a new car. When you have it, you just know something is going to happen at some point. It's funny you say that because I was the 16 year old kid. My mom let me drive her brand new minivan. I think it was like two months (laughs) old and it was parked behind my car. And she's like, just take, I was going to get something at the store. She's like, just take the van. It'll be fine. 
and somebody hit me and it was oh. not my fault. Yeah. And I had my brother's girlfriend with me. So I had a witness and this man, he was probably, I, I hate to say this, but he was probably too old to be driving. He was like mm-hmm. a very old gentleman, probably in his eighties. And he pulled out in front of me mm-hmm. and didn't have time. Like he just couldn't judge the distance. Yeah. And I wasn't experienced enough of a driver to swerve or anything. So I hit him and oh, no. it wasn't my fault. Thank God. But it was my mom's brand new van. Oh, no. They had just gotten so and it's like once you damage one part of the car it's like ruined it's never the same yeah yeah it's like our bodies (laughs) (laughs) once something starts to go wrong and the rest goes wrong just falls apart yeah my body sucks right now and you'll find out why here in a second because this case just consumed my life yeah i have not slept i'm going on maybe six hours over the last few days yeah. And I keep passing out in the middle of the day to like try and make up for it, but it's not working because my mind won't shut the fuck up. That's why you just need to get it out. So today. we need to get it out today yes. so I can move on. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess we'll just get straight into it. Today I'm covering the murder of Lacey Peterson and yeah, her unborn son, Connor. They died in December of 2002. Scott Peterson, the husband of Lacey and father to Connor, was convicted of their murders. Mm hmm. My sister Candace suggested this case. I knew nothing about it, which I'm glad of because people are very opinionated in this case. Yes. yes. And I think it required an objective take. Yeah. I think it was similar to why I wanted to do John Bonet because I had not been in it. And you mentioned doing this, and I am opinionated on the Scott Peterson case. And I'll tell you why. I was pregnant with my first child oh, when it happened. That makes sense. So I think there was like this emotional connection. Mm-hmm. And my child was born one month after. Oh, wow. Okay. So pretty yeah. much on the same timetable as Connor would have been. And it was all over the news and Scott looked pretty fucking guilty from everything. I know you may present a different thing, but from what I know and what I followed and what I saw, and I've never really done a deep dive into this case. It seemed like an open and shut kind of case that Scott did it. Hmm. He was cheating on her. But after doing this podcast, of course, we all know there's so many nuances (laughs) with everything. So we'll see. You might, you know, change my mind by the end of this. But I always thought he was guilty. Well, we'll see. Maybe you're the test because it seems that it doesn't matter what information is presented to anyone who's listened to new stuff about this case. You know, it's confirmation bias. They're going to stick to what was ingrained in them back then. And I mean, I hope that's not the case because that's what we're here to do is to question things. But it is very clear that this was news of the day for a very long time, similar to like OJ and other cases like that. For me, I was 16 years old. Yeah, you didn't care. I definitely was not watching TV at the time. Who knows what I was doing, really? Right. (laughs) So this didn't ring a bell for me when my sister brought it up. And she's probably going to be upset with some of the stuff I say here. Or she's going to be like, wow, I didn't know that because she was like you. I'm pretty sure her stance is Scott's guilty. Like, yeah, it's Scott. It was like one of the most well-known husband wife murder cases. It's referenced in so many things. And it reminds me of when Chris Watts, who's the Colorado guy who killed his wife and three kids because he was having an affair. There was yep. all kinds of comparison during that. And I think that brought mm. the Peterson And she was also up. pregnant. Was she? See, yeah. I don't even remember. Chris Watts is probably one we'll cover at some point. We actually said we would never cover him because of how 
mad we were about him. We said that in one episode. Did I mean, we? we might have to take that back. <laughs> we but. change our minds sometimes. But <laughs> I, yeah, he's not like top of the list. He's not going to get done in the next year, probably. But right. I don't know. This case just got me. I was sucked in very quickly because to me, it's always interesting coming to the stories years later when there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Definitely. And the emotions have died down after. I don't know because there's current stuff going on in this case. I did see that. It did come up on my news feed. I saw that he had tried to get another trial and they told him no. We're going to come to what's currently going Mm -hmm. on. But I feel like there is a much bigger picture now than we could have ever had back then. And I believe that some of that was intentional at the time. Yeah. So I think this story certainly shows the flaws of our justice system. I feel like we always uncover something. Yep. Shoddy police work, crooked police work. As we've pointed out many times on this podcast, cops, detectives and prosecutors not doing their job. There are a lot of holes, leads not followed, too many opinions, lives lost lives at risk, gossip, media manipulation all over the place. I went down this road thinking, okay, they got the guy. So really, I'm just giving the details. And I was just so wrong. This really is an opinion piece. Okay. And really, it's more of a case where I don't think enough was done to prove something. But I'm not against her husband still being the guy. I'll just say that right off the bat. It's just a controversial case that I'm sure is going to bring people out of the woodworks because I'm sure now, just as it was back then, regardless of everything I am going to say in this episode, your decision may be set in stone and you will not be willing to budge on it. People are very passionate about this case. Yeah. But like it should be with every case before jumping to conclusions, we are going to go over all of the details. Then you decide if you still think he's the guy. Whatever. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to be mad at you. But personally, I just needed more proof. Yeah. It's understandable why so many people are passionate about this case, considering what happened. But I'd argue that a lot of passion around this case is morbid curiosity Mm -hmm. and being sucked into this like scandalous story and the fact that they were good looking. I don't think this case would have ever reached the national attention that it did worldwide attention that it did if they were unattractive. Well, yeah, we are all sucked in, like you said, especially when it involves scandalous affairs, you know, kind of sex details like that. And then the fact that they were good looking and the fact that it was a woman who was pregnant, like that's a horrific person to be murdered. So that also, I think, draws more of that morbid. You could say that, but other pregnant women were also disappearing and murdered at the same time. And they never reached national cases like this. True. So I just want to make this clear right away. This isn't an easy case to have an opinion on. I've read all the Reddit threads. (laughs) I see what you all say for and against. I read what people say who claim to have done tons of research for themselves over the years and are set on their opinion of the matter. I've read stuff from people who claim to have read every single book out there on the case. And then you read what they write and it's absolutely riddled with incorrect information. And I mean, stuff I know for 100% fact to be incorrect. Like all you have to do is go find that recording, find that document, and you're wrong. And what makes me worried about that is people will come to that and be like, wow, they read absolutely everything. So I'm going to believe everything that they're saying. 
Right. Because they're not going to read all the books. And so you have all these people who are taking this person to be the legitimate opinion over the matter. It's all the lens that you approach the case with. Right. And, and you and I try to approach every case with no opinion and no bias. Yep. Where we can. Like, even if I had been researching this case, I thought he was guilty when yeah. it happened. I would approach it as with a clear mind yep. and see if they could sway me. It's the same thing we saw with John Binet. People want to stick to their yeah. idea. And you can read a book with that lens where you already think so-and-so did it. And it's going to be very, very hard to sway it someone is. who goes in that way already, even if they've done all the research they say they did. And you can also take the evidence and build the story the way you want it to be with a lot of cases, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I will say that I think cops do that. Detectives do that. We saw it on the John Binet case where they mm. would leave out things that were, you know, inconvenient for their theory. Yeah, all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was bringing this up, because reading everything that everyone said, it just triggered me because it proved to me that people are going to have a lot of opinions about this. And I knew that Kendra and I are going to have to prepare ourselves for some possible backlash from others who think that they know best. Yep. Because I've seen how disgusting some people get over others' opinions on this case. Mm -hmm. The internet is rough, man. <laughs> uh, first of all, chill out. We're not doing that. Unless you were in that house, on that street, on that boat, or in that relationship, I'm sorry, but you don't get to attack other people for also expressing their opinions. We all have access to the same information in reality. I flip-flopped a lot and I'm still not decided and I'm not sure if I should be because this can't be about what I think of someone or you. There has to be more than conjecture. Yep. Especially when it comes down to being locked away in prison yep. for life. I get that in a court of law, circumstantial evidence can be just as valid. But for me, if you can't tie it together and prove it to me, then it's an opinion. We're here to discuss the evidence there is and the theories around Lacey's disappearance and murder. And it's a wild ride, so get comfortable. There is doubt and there is conflicting information all over the damn place in this case. Okay. Nothing is certain, but what is certain is this case was a freaking mess from the very start. So let's do what we do best and let's challenge the narrative and we're going to see where we land. Okay, let's do it. I'm buckling up now for this ride. <laughs> and because I know how much I wrote on this case, which is more than any other case I've covered so far... <laughs> This is going to be part one of the story, so please enjoy this episode and make sure you're coming back for part two next week. Yes. A lot of the juicy bits will be in part two. It always falls out that way. Yeah. It's just how it happens. <laughs> we'll discuss all the inconsistencies and theories. It was just too big of a story. Yeah, we want to do it the right justice. And for those of you that are new to our podcast, YouTube has a limit and we want to make sure that we don't exclude our listeners there. So we appreciate the collective weight. Yes. It's not too long. It's only a week. It'll be okay. Especially for those of you who already know the story. Just right. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get some background on the people involved. Overall, this story is about Lacey and Scott Peterson and their unborn son, Connor. Mm -hmm. Lacey was born Lacey Denise Rocha on May 4th, 1975 in Escalon, California, her parents were Sharon Anderson and Dennis Robert Rocha, and they had met in high school. She had an older brother by four years, Brent. At first, they lived on a 365-acre dairy farm owned by Dennis Rocha and his parents, but her parents' marriage was short-lived as they divorced when Lacey was two. Oh, wow. Sharon moved her children to Modesto, California. There, she met a man, Ron Gransky, who became Lacey's stepfather. 
The kids still visited their father on the dairy farm on the weekends. Lacey loved the farm and worked on the farm from a very young age. She enjoyed gardening with her mother. She particularly loved sunflowers. Lacey was a cheerleader in middle school and high school. She was very popular, bubbly, and loved interacting with others. She was always ready to start a conversation. She graduated from Thomas Down High School in Modesto and went on to receive her bachelor's in ornamental horticulture from the California Polytechnic State University. That's an interesting major. I think it just falls in line with what she was doing her her whole life already. Scott was born Scott Lee Peterson on October 24th, 1972 in San Diego, California. His father, Lee Arthur Peterson, owned a crate packaging company. And his mother, Jacqueline Helen, she went by Jackie, owned a little boutique in La Jolla called The Put-On. Oh, cute. I love La Jolla. Yeah. Lots of little shopping places. I could see that. It was a big family. Jackie and Lee had a total of six children from previous relationships, and Scott was the last and their only child together. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is part of the six. I do know that Jackie had given up two kids for adoption in the very beginning. Okay. Which was like she a had weird... them young? or I think so. Yeah. Because they came back into Jackie's life and, you know, met their siblings. Okay. Later on, later after on, they had grown yeah, up, probably. it was actually just within a couple of years after Scott meets Lacey. Okay. The family loved to fish and play golf. Scott was a good student and became an avid golfer at a very young age. He loved it okay. so much. He dreamed of becoming a professional golfer. When he was young, they would go places and he would have a little golf club, one that his dad kind of created for him, like he cut off part of it so it was his size. Mm-hmm. And he had a fishing rod because okay. they would go golfing at this country club and there was a little river that ran through it. So when he was bored, he would go fish. Yeah. So fishing has always been in Scott's life. And that's been something that people say, oh, he just started this. No, he it's, just bought the boat. Yeah, He's done this mm-hmm. forever. He went to the University of San Diego High School, where he was teammates with now pro golfer Phil Mickelson. Oh, okay. But Scott was really good. He was one of the top junior golfers in San Diego at the time. Okay. He went to Arizona State University on a partial scholarship for golf. Interestingly, this is also where Mickelson went. Okay. They were a couple years apart, Mm -hmm. but... Scott didn't feel that he was as good as Mickelson and others, but he kept his dream up until he was kicked off the team. Another young golfer, now pro golfer, Christian Couch, was visiting Arizona State on a recruiting trip and Scott took him out drinking. I was about to say, did he drink too much? That's so funny. Okay. (laughs) Obviously, he wasn't of age yet. Chris's father found out and complained to the coach and that got Scott kicked off the team. Oh, man. So he could have been a professional golfer. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, he would have been kind of lower on the totem pole, I think. But it seems a little drastic if you're asking me. Ruin a kid's shot in life because they went out drinking. It seems really ridiculous to me. Yeah, they're really strict with the athletes in college. I I get it. Yeah. They don't get one one, one chance. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> one strike, you're out. I don't know. Maybe everything would have turned out different. This would Maybe. have never happened. Maybe. Here's that butterfly effect. True. From there, Scott transferred to another college, but ultimately ended up at California Polytechnic State University and majored in agricultural business. He was an ideal student. Even one of his professors said, I wouldn't mind having a class full of Scott Petersons. Okay. Just something to speak to Scott. Like he, from everything that I gathered, he was a really, just a really good kid. He was a quiet kid. I mean, he had a lot going for him, Mm -hmm. but people back then even described him as just being, he wasn't hot headed. He wasn't emotional about things. 
he wasn't like off the walls. He was just Run always kind of yeah. chill, I guess. Okay. So how did they meet? Well, they both went to the same school and were studying sort of in the same field, right, which I close. found interesting. But they didn't meet there. Scott was working at a restaurant called the Pacific Cafe in Morro Bay. And Lacey would go there from time to time because she had a friend that also worked there. Mm -hmm. She met him there and she liked him. And she was the one to make the first move. She gave him her phone number. Okay. A little bit later, he called her. This was in 1994. They began dating. Their first date was a deep sea fishing trip. Interesting. And she got really sick on it. (laughs) Yeah. That's a crazy first date to like. Go out on a boat for hours. Yeah. I don't think I could handle that. Or like, what if you don't like the conversation? You're stuck on a boat with this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if they went alone or if it was like part of something. It was probably a tour. Yeah. Yeah. Early on, Lacey was convinced that Scott was the man that she was going to marry. And she even told her mother that. Scott still had a dream of becoming a professional golfer. Like he didn't just let it go. Yeah. But he did put that aside to focus on his business career. And eventually he did let that dream go once Lacey and he got more serious. Mm -hmm. They dated for two years before moving in together. He proposed and after Lacey graduated in 1997, they married at Sycamore Mineral Springs Resort. Scott was still finishing up his senior year, so Lacey got a job nearby in Prunedale. Scott graduated and the two decided to actually open a little sports burger bar in San Luis Obispo called The Shack. Okay. A little side note here. I've been to this little town. Have you ever been there? Mm -mm. Oh, I love it. It's kind of a core memory for me. This is from my adulthood. I took a little road trip through California when my daughter was young, I think like three years old, and we were hopping from town to town using an app to randomly choose where we were going to stay that night. Yeah. And so we ended up at this motel and the pool was right off of our first floor room. And so it was just like this little magical few days there. Yeah. And you could see that like the hills like rolling off in the distance. And they had this swinging lounge chair right by the pool. So we would just be on this swing couch for like two hours. I really liked it. Anyway, I fell in love with it. But that's where they were. Okay. And this little restaurant did really well, actually. And they ended up selling it after two to three years and moved to Modesto, where Lacey's family was. Okay. At first, they were still living the young life and weren't ready for kids. But after being around family more and other babies, they decided to start trying. Mm Mm-hmm. In October of 2000, they bought a three-bedroom, two-bath bungalow on Covina Avenue. It was an upscale neighborhood near East La Loma Park. On the other side of that, not so upscale, and crime was very frequent. Okay. Lacey was working part-time as a substitute teacher, and Scott was working for a subsidiary of a European fertilizer company, Tradecorp USA. Okay. Together, they brought in a decent amount of money for that time, I'd say. Lacey really took on being a housewife. She really loved it from what her family says. So, I mean, she's not here. She can't say for herself, but she loved to cook Mm -hmm. and she did like to entertain. She loved Martha Stewart gardening and walking their dog. She did love a simpler life. It seemed like she was content. Okay. In 2002, they found out that Lacey was pregnant and was due February 10th, 2003. Although there's arguments that her doctors later changed that to the 16th or something. Okay. Not sure. After finding out that the baby was going to be a boy, they planned to give him the name Connor. Mm-hmm. So for all we know up to this point, they were happy. Yeah, sounds like they were expecting little perfect story, right? Yeah. American dream going on right now. All I question in the beginning as far as like tension arising between them is 
I can't imagine them being all happy-go-lucky starting a restaurant together. I don't know if you've ever worked at a restaurant, no, restaurant but that's business. stressful. Yeah. So maybe if tension was starting, it would have been there. Maybe that's why they let it go. They're like, we just got married. It's tearing us apart. And it's tearing yeah. us apart. We need to go somewhere I, else. I am of the opinion that when you are married, being around each other too much, especially like I've seen it break up so many. Oh, I know family companies you can't work together some people can and I think they ruin it for everyone else thinking that they can too right but they're the exception yeah and even where I work like I work at a company where a lot of people started like right out of college and many of them got married or dated and it's a weird situation when you are married and work at the same place because work never stops you end up taking it home with you talking about it way too much and yeah I don't know even marriage counselors would say don't do it (laughs) yeah I don't think it sets you up for success no I won't say that it can't work it's just I think you would have to work really hard at it for it to work and I would not want to work with my partner like every day in and out like yeah you need either. a break you need your own things yeah so it's December 2002. Lacey is 27 years old. He's 30 mm-hmm. and she's eight months pregnant. Okay. And on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 2002, Lacey disappears. The day before, on December 23rd, Lacey had an afternoon appointment with her OBGYN. And then Lacey and Scott visited Lacey's sister, Amy, at her salon so that Scott could have a haircut. Okay. Amy was Lacey's half sister from her father, Dennis, after he remarried. This haircut was a monthly occurrence. They got there at 5.45 p.m. Scott was planning to play golf the next day, and Amy had this fruit basket that she needed to have picked up, and when Scott learned of the location, he did offer to pick it up for her because it was near the golf course. Mm -hmm. He invited Amy over for pizza and a football game that night. She couldn't, so Lacey and Scott grabbed pizza on their way home and watched the game. Later that night, around 8.30 p.m., Lacey spoke with her mother on the phone, and they were talking about plans for Christmas Eve dinner the next day. Yeah. After that call, Lacey and Scott watched a movie in bed, The Rookie, before falling asleep around 10.30. Okay. Outside of Scott, those were the last two family members to speak with Lacey. Okay. Her sister, Amy, and her mother, Sharon. The next morning, now this is according to Scott. Okay. That's all we know now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The next morning, Lacey was up before Scott. Scott was up around 8, 8.30. Scott was on his way out the door to go fishing at the Berkeley Marina in Richmond around 9.45. This was about 90 miles away. It was a last-minute decision to shift to going out on his boat instead. He had recently bought the boat, so instead of golfing, he just wanted to fish a little. He felt like it was a little too chilly that day for golfing, and he had purchased previously a four-day fishing license on the 20th and wanted to use it. Okay. Use it or lose it type of thing. So he bought it on the 20th and had to use it by the 24th. Yeah. Okay. This license is brought up a bunch as... Premeditated. Correct. I can see that. Mm Mm-hmm. According to Scott, Lacey was watching the Martha Stewart show and remembers hearing something about baking meringues. Okay. He said she was getting ready to bake some gingerbread cookies and then take their dog to the park. She had plans to also go to a store at some point for ingredients for a casserole that she was going to be making for Christmas brunch the next day. And when he was leaving, she was either already mopping the kitchen floor or about to. Okay. Later that evening, they were expected at Lacey's mom's house for Christmas Eve dinner. Okay. Scott stopped at his warehouse on the way to the marina, which was just about nine, ten minutes away from their house. 
This is where he kept the boat. Okay. On his way to the warehouse at 10.08, he listened to a voicemail that he got from his boss, and this was confirmed through phone records. At the warehouse, he did a couple of things there, including looking up how to assemble a woodworking tool that had shown up to the shop recently and sending an email to his boss. Okay. Records also show that he was on the computer from 10.30 to 10.56 in the morning. He doesn't leave for about another 20 minutes. People have argued that he was doing something nefarious during those 20 minutes. But when the warehouse later was searched, that tool was assembled. So he was just working on that. So, yeah, I assume that's what he's doing. He just looked it up. Makes sense that you immediately then go put it together. Mm -hmm. A little side note here, just because this is happening, I guess, simultaneously. At some point that morning, their dog was found wandering outside the home with his leash dragging and was put in the backyard by their neighbor. And we're going to come back to that a lot. Oh, okay. So then he leaves and drives roughly an hour and a half to the marina. He gets a ticket from the marina at 12.54 p.m. He launched his boat and headed into the water for some cruising and then stopped to fish in a shallow area of the water. But after Scott was out there for about an hour, he noticed the time and decided that it was time to head back, which, you know, that is a little weird for me. It wasn't a very long fishing excursion. No. And he had just been talking about golfing the day before. As he says, you know, it was chilly. He'd rather bundle up and go sit and fish than be outside in the cold golfing. Yeah. I mean, it's, if it's chilly, I probably wouldn't want to go golfing. I can understand bundling up to go fish if you're a fisher. I would go back to, you know, the whole he bought the fishing license on December 20th. And if it was premeditated, why would he have told her sister the day before he was going golfing? He probably would have been like, oh, I'm going to go fishing tomorrow instead. Maybe he thought he was going golfing. It sounds like he that, golfs all the that's fucking what I'm time. Say, that's so. what I'm trying to say. Like if yeah. he had premeditatively bought that on December 20th, planning to take his wife's body out, which oh. is, you know, getting ahead. Oh, I why see Why would saying. he have told her sister? Golfing. I'm going to golf tomorrow. Right. So it makes sense that he just changed his mind last minute because gotcha. he, he was already telling her sister, I'm yeah. going to go golfing tomorrow. And he told a lot of people that he was doing golf stuff. Yeah. So he would have told everybody he was going to go fishing if he had bought that license specifically for the purpose they're going to say he did. Yeah. You know, I do question where he went fishing. Like, why didn't he go somewhere closer? Yeah. Was there places closer? There was. Were there places he usually went? I don't know. You know, maybe that's where he likes to go. Maybe he just knew that that was a better area. Like everybody does argue, well, he could have gone somewhere closer. I'm like, but was it as good? You know, it's not like all of these places are made equal. People go to certain places for certain things. And I'm guessing he had the day off and he's like, oh, I have enough time today to go further. Possibly. He didn't need to be home till or a certain time. Or he just time. wanted to check out an area too. Yeah. That happens all the time. Especially when you have a new boat. You want to go check yeah. out all the lakes. We've had a friend buy a boat and that's what he did the first summer. He went to every fucking lake in Colorado. Yeah. With the boat. <laughs> so I don't think it's necessarily suspicious. Yeah. Anyway, Scott called Lacey around 2.15 p.m. after getting his boat docked back up. She didn't answer, so he left a message, and you know this is recorded. It's something like, hey, beautiful, it's 2.15, I'm leaving Berkeley. He went on to ask her if she might be willing to go pick up that basket that he told her sister that he would pick up for her since he didn't end up going Golfing. to the golf club. Mm-hmm. And then he tells her that he'll see her soon, and he loves her and says goodbye. Okay. I saw somewhere someone stating that Scott did not tell Lacey that he was going to the marina because there was no calls between him and her between the 10.08 of listening to that voicemail and 2.15. 
I'm like, well, why would he call her to tell her if he was just with her? He would have just told her. He would have told her where he was going when he (laughs) left the house. It's like some of these things, that's what I'm saying. Some people try to make things fit. And I'm like, why would he not have a conversation with his own wife at the house about what he was doing if he was going fishing? And then like, you know, if Drew leaves the house in the morning and I know what he's doing, we're not going to call and talk to each other multiple times during the day. He's going to do the same thing. are going to do our own shit. Yeah. And he's going to do the same thing that Scott just did is he'll usually call me and be like, hey, or text me yeah. in this day and age and be like, hey, I'm headed home. We'll see you soon. That's exact. To me, that seems like normal couple behavior when you're yeah. around each other all the time. You're not calling each other multiple times. Right. So on his way back, he stopped for gas and he tried calling Lacey again, but didn't reach her. He gets back to his warehouse around 4.13 p.m. to put the boat back. He unloads everything and heads home, getting there around 4.30, 4.45 p.m. Okay. When Scott got home, he saw Lacey's car in the driveway, but she wasn't inside the house. The door was unlocked and their dog Mackenzie was in the backyard with the leash still on. Mm -hmm. He found that to be odd, but he took the leash off. He notices a bucket of the dirty mop water and dumps it out. He thought she might be with her mother Christmas shopping or something. Okay. She was a grown woman and she didn't need his permission to leave the house and she would often leave with family members and just go do something. Okay. He didn't think anything of it. He decides to shower, which people use as a reason that, oh, he must have done something to need to take a shower. And I'm like, he was at a fishing marina. (laughs) I mean, every single person that I know, especially men, let me take that back. Every man that I know, if they had the opportunity, they would shower multiple times a day. Yeah. It's just like a man thing to do. They love it. They just love showering. Mm -hmm. No. And especially if they've been out. Yeah. He feels icky. Yeah. And they were supposed to be leaving for Christmas dinner yeah, soon. Exactly. So he, didn't he needs want to, to freshen back up. You don't want to smell like the fishy marina. Right. He also threw his clothes in the wash again. This is personally, this is something brought up. I don't find that odd either. I throw my clothes in the wash. I use that as my hamper and it takes a button to start the wash. So to me, it's just a Well, here's how, what I would thing. say. Did he throw just those clothes in the wash? So he does explain some more stuff when it comes to his clothes. He said it's a habit of his. He does wash his clothes separately from hers and he does wash them often because he works with fertilizer and a lot of things that are bad for pregnant women and he doesn't want to bring home any of that stuff around her. So it's kind of like when my brother used to work outside of the house during COVID, his wife would immediately take off all of his clothes and like throw it in the wash. He just said he did it all the time. So they were not worried about, you know, efficiency. Like I only wash when I have a full load of clothes, for instance. That's why I'm asking. I think it would be suspicious if you just threw that one outfit in and washed it by itself. Yeah. But to me, it doesn't take more than a second to push a button and start a load. Yeah. I don't know. It's an argument, but we've seen this in a lot of cases. And just because you wash your clothes does not make you guilty of murder. Yeah, maybe And that's where we keep going. Yeah. Is, oh, well, like he did this crazy thing. And I'm like, it's not that crazy. If any of us were accused of doing something and they came and looked at our every bit of behavior throughout Something's the day, gonna we look all crazy. look fucking guilty of yes. something and you can make anything fit True. whatever you want it to be. So I'm just saying the clothing thing, I don't think that's odd. Okay. He was fishing. Yeah. It could have smelled like fish. That's what he I'm thinking. could have smelled. Yeah. He's just getting ready. And maybe, maybe she didn't like the smell of fish I was anymore. About to say, she's pregnant and smells bother her. So yeah, that's, that's true. possible too. So anyway, he gets out of the shower and this isn't that much longer. At 5.17 p.m., he calls Lacey's mom to see if Lacey's with her. Mm -hmm. Sharon said that Lacey was not with them. So Scott left and he checked with a couple of his neighbors and friends to see if they had seen Lacey. They didn't. Scott called Sharon back to let her know at 5.32 p.m. 
And at 5.45, Ron, Lacey's stepdad, called the police and reported her missing. Okay. So everything happened pretty quickly yeah. within that mm-hmm. less than 20 minute period. And everybody's like, well, why did Lacey's dad call? Well, because who cares? <laughs> it's someone from the family. They're all looking for because her. Because Scott was probably walking around the neighborhood at that time, maybe. Who knows? It is kind of weird to immediately call the cops. Yeah. But knowing that she wasn't with her family, which I'm assuming that's just what she normally did, like her mom and her would hang out or they'd go and do something. It's Christmas Eve. That's true. Yeah. Where else are you going to be? Everybody's, you know. And her car's there. Yeah. But I'm just saying his immediate reaction is not to be like, oh, Lacey's missing when he gets home and her car's home. Nobody would jump to that immediately. You don't think worst case. You just go, oh, there's a rational explanation for why she's not here. She's out with her parents. You call people who know her or whatever and see if she's with them. But soon her disappearance became immediate national news. Okay. She was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Very, very pregnant. The Modesto police detectives that arrived at the Peterson home responding to the missing person call included Alan Brocchini and John Bueller. They were the lead investigators. They found Lacey's keys, wallet, and sunglasses in her purse in a closet. Scott told them about his day and immediately he was kind of their main man, their main suspect. Always is. Yeah. One thing for sure did not help. There was a phone book out and it was open to a page where there was an ad for a criminal defense attorney. Obviously, that's not all that was on the pages, but it was there. (laughs) That's weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The mop being out, which he kind of already explained that. There was a rug bunched up by the back door, ranch dressing out with a pizza box on the counter, and Lacey's curling iron was out on the counter. All of these things sound like a normal household to me. Yeah. It really does. There's there's nothing. Like, I leave pizza boxes out sometimes on the counter for a few days. I eat it with ranch dressing. If there's not that much left in it or I'm crazy and I lost my mind, I forget to put shit back sometimes. And dudes don't give a shit about (laughs) helping out sometimes. (laughs) They won't pick up after you. The rug bunched up by the back door. First of all, I found it funny because it was the cop who was like, oh, it seemed like he was dragging something heavy. And I'm like, why would it be up against the door then? That doesn't make any sense. Immediately, what my brain thought of, and you can't tell if something's been dragged on a rug unless there's blood or something Mm -hmm. that you can see. But immediately, what I thought of is their dog. Because dogs get excited. And oh, yeah. Our rug bunched. is all over the Yeah, that's house. what I'm saying. Every time yeah. my dog wanted to go outside, she would run to the back door and I'd have to move the rug every time because she would bunch it up against the back yeah. door being crazy. That's what I thought of. And a curling iron out. Okay. Like, it's just some of the stuff that they mentioned as... She's a pregnant woman, too. She probably grabbed the curling iron to go plug it in and then thought, oh, I need to go grab something downstairs and carried it with her. Like, yeah, I don't know if it was a two-story house. But anyways... no. Like, that's just, they call it pregnancy brain and also just normal woman brain. Yeah, what You're did doing I... a thousand things at once. She was going to go curl her hair, but then she was like, oh shit, I need to go like turn off the boiling water. I don't know. Like there's something and you like have it in your hand and you carry it with you and then you set it down. Yeah. I do that with my phone and then I find it in the weirdest places. I found it in the refrigerator. So yeah, <laughs> like, I've done that before. <laughs> to me that I don't know what the cops are saying with any of that. Did he, they, That's did what he, I'm saying. Did they're... he beat her with the curling iron? <laughs> like, what? They're what just... are they getting at? They're mentioning these things as if it's suspicious and nothing to me is ringing suspicious. Yeah, when you just said that, I'm just sitting here going, okay, I haven't heard anything yet. That really made me think like an altercation took place or anything. There was another thing that Brocchini said was suspicious. Um, (laughs) I'm laughing already, but he said that on their bed, he said it looked like a five foot long body had been wrapped up and put there. 
like an impression on the bed. And I saw this photo. Okay. They have one of those big, chunky, white down comforters. Okay. That's just lumpy and bumpy all over the place. Those things never look good. You're not going to have a clean looking bed if you have one of those types of comforters. It does not look like that at all. It just looks lumpy and bumpy. And I'm like, why are you phrasing it in the term of wrapped up body? I'm like, how can you tell that that a five foot burrito was on that bed? You can't. Like, it's not... Or, it doesn't look like that. Or the dog jumped up on it say, and made somebody... it messy at some point. But it definitely doesn't look like some very clean formed thing was laying there for a long time. It or doesn't. Lacey finished mopping and went upstairs and laid down for a second because she was fucking tired as a pregnant woman. But, and it left a weird impression. <laughs> I just think it's so weird that it looks like there was a body wrapped up there. I'm like, use different words. Can you please show me what that was supposed to look like? I mean, yeah. I can picture what it would look like, but it didn't look like anything. To jump it to just looked conclusion. like a, it looked like a bed. Yeah, that's a, a quick conclusion to jump to. What kind of dog did they have? Was it a bigger dog or a smaller dog? It was a golden dog? retriever. Oh, yeah. So definitely the rug makes sense. Yeah. I have a German Shepherd. And like I said, rugs are all over the place. And those dogs are golden retrievers. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> they have a lot of energy. Yep. And I'm going to say this right now. When it comes to Detective Brokini, I don't really believe a thing this dude says. He okay. admits that Scott was kind of his focus from the get go. And he is found later during the trial to have lied on several things. So a lot of this character stuff in the beginning and what he saw is just based on what he already Brokini has yeah. written down or said. And so I take all of that with a grain of salt. And so some of it I'm not even going to present here because I don't believe the guy. I just don't. And okay. it's just stupid stuff. Like okay. there's no recorded evidence that this is what's said. And he's been proven to be a liar, be a liar, intentionally remove important information like he, you know, he did bad stuff with this. So I'm bringing that up because I don't know. This isn't recorded. Okay. When it came to fishing that day, he was asked what he was fishing for, and he said sturgeon, according to the police. Okay. I found contradicting evidence that he did not say that, and that was something later added by the police. Okay. I'm not getting into that one because that is one that is argued by people who have started to follow the case. Because I'm guessing the area he went to doesn't have sturgeon or something like that. It wasn't the season for sturgeon, and it was illegal to... Fish for them or something. Right. It was illegal to fish for them at that time. And to me, it's just a way to frame, oh, well, he was out there doing something else. It wasn't for that. So he has to be lying. But I just did not find the proof of that. Okay. And Scott was an experienced fisher and had been boating his whole life. Mm -hmm. People really try to say that he was not involved in fishing. And he was. I've heard that, too. I heard he had just bought the boat like a week before or something. I don't know if he did buy it a couple of weeks before. Okay. But this isn't new for him and his family. It wasn't like not out of character for him to have a fishing boat and for him to go fishing. It's not like it's some guy who's never fished a day in his life and he came home and he's like, look, I bought a boat. Right. Like it wouldn't have been a huge surprise. Right. I don't know, like monetarily, if it was like planned with his wife, because men do stupid shit like this where they they just come home and say, I bought a boat and that can lead to some like tension because you're like, cool, we're about to have a baby and you just spent $50,000 on a boat. I mean, it's kind of a midlife crisis moment, right? Yeah. But he's about to have a baby and he yeah. could be freaking out. And he's yeah. like, I got to be a man. I got to go buy a boat. <laughs> Maybe he thought it was his last chance to have a boat. So he oh, bought a boat yeah. <laughs> because he's like, she's not going to let me do this after. Right. <laughs> but then I could see that being some marital tension if yeah. it wasn't pre-planned. Like that's a big purchase. That and you we're not going to know. Yeah. She's not here to say anything about the boat. Yeah. Because she could have been like, cool, go buy a boat. Or she could have been like, what the fuck? Why did you buy a boat? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It is. It can. And we've all experienced it. Uh, Yeah. Anyone who's been married has. (laughs) 
So we're all very suspicious in our actions every single day. So Bueller, you know, along with Brocchini, suspected Scott right away, though, because of this fishing thing. Okay. Well, I mean, it does sound suspicious when you're like, oh, my wife's gone. I was out fishing. And they're like, yeah. it's Christmas Eve. That doesn't and seem she's right. Very it's very pregnant. Yeah. yeah. I could see why they would jump the, to that, not cold, knowing him. The cold part doesn't shake me at all much. when it comes to fishing. I know people who fish. It doesn't matter. Yeah, they fish, fish in zero degree weather. Like, yeah. that doesn't matter. So Bueller says, I suspected Scott when I first met him. Didn't mean he did it, but I was a little bit thrown off by his calm, cool demeanor and his lack of questioning. He wasn't, will you call me back? Can I have one of your cars? What are you guys doing now? And he described Scott's behavior as a strange combination of polite and arrogant, disaffectedly distant and impatiently irritable. He just didn't seem like a man who was crushed or even greatly disturbed by his wife's disappearance and possible death. So we're going to talk about Scott's behavior a lot throughout this. Okay. In fact, one of the biggest reasons why the American public became so involved in the outcome of this case and presumed him guilty is because of how he acted. His demeanor. And just what he looked like. I was about to say, my caveat is we all process things differently. Correct. And some of us stay calm and cool and they're like secretly freaking out inside. Yeah. And they don't let the world see that. I get really annoyed with the way that the police or the public does this every time there's some kind of murder or anything. They're like, you know, that parent's not grieving enough. That husband doesn't look sad enough that I'm not going to automatically say someone's suspicious because of that. So that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. But they sure use it. Yeah. And, it you know, it was Christmas time. We're kind of getting into this 24-hour news stuff going on. And there was a lull in the news. And when they learned of Lacey's disappearance, it became the focus for everyone. Yeah. It's exciting. Before community officials or police got involved in the search, Lacey's friends and loved ones and volunteers were all helping. About 900 people were looking for Lacey. Modesto police and firefighters carried out an exhaustive search the next day. They searched along Dry Creek. They had helicopters, searchlights, canine units, people on bicycle, on horseback. They had water rescue units, divers combing the bay, and quickly the search for Lacey just reached everywhere. Okay. Soon after that, there was a cash reward offered for any information leading to Lacey's safe return. It started at $25,000 and later increased to two hundred and fifty. dollars Volunteers increased to over 1,500 people to help circulate information and developments in hopes of finding her. So it became just a very huge thing, especially in Modesto and in California. Yeah. By the 26th, Covina Street was lined with news vans. People parked outside of the home and residents were crowding everywhere. Mm -hmm. And every time Scott was filmed or photographed, he came off emotionless. And they made sure to grab that and send that to the media. Yeah. I don't know how I would react if cameras were shoved in my face all the time. I would probably have resting bitch face. I would probably be numb. You know, if my daughter went missing and I'm in this situation... For me personally, my brain would be like, I don't have time to cry right now. Yeah. My brain is thinking of what's going to happen. And then if you can't even walk out to your car or something, I think it would be very disorienting and very weird for you to have to try and figure that out. Yeah. I just don't think you're not going to be crying 24 seven because when someone is missing, if you're a logical type brain, you're just like thinking about next steps all the time. And I would be lost in my thoughts. And if somebody put Mm -hmm. a camera in my face, that would be what I would look like. And it wouldn't, you know, come across like the grieving mother or wife. Yeah. For that reason. I think so. Everybody. Once again, I'm not. Everybody does it different. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm not going to like crucify this guy because he's not covered in tears 24-7. I know, but people did and they still do. Yeah. Despite the police department's interest in Scott as a suspect and question after question from the media during this initial period, Scott's in-laws did defend him and did not think that he was involved. Okay. As police continued to investigate, they grew more suspicious of Scott, although I'm sure even in the beginning, you can't help but wonder because, you know, the majority of violence against women are from their partners. Yeah. And you just have to question that. But it's an entirely different thing if you're not pursuing other avenues to make sure. And we're going to come to that. So here enters Amber Fry. Amber Fry was romantically involved with Scott. She contacted the police on December 30th, 2002. Lacey's family would not find out about Amber until almost a month later. Amber didn't really watch TV herself, and so she didn't know that this was happening until, you know, it had already been a few days. At the time, Amber had just graduated from massage school, and she was a single mother to a toddler, a girl named Ayana. Okay. She lived in Fresno, California. So a little bit about how they met. So a friend of Amber's had met Scott and thought Scott would be perfect for Amber. Okay. He told her he was single. And they met up for a pretty big first date on November 20th, 2002. Okay. So their affair hadn't been going on a long time. So right before Thanksgiving. This is like a month later. Okay. They had seen each other four times. Okay. But it was serious quickly enough. It's like a fast and furious kind of thing. Yeah. Love bombing. Yep, exactly. (laughs) On their first date, he treated her to strawberries and champagne before having dinner at a Japanese restaurant. And then they went next door, did some karaoke and ended up at a hotel. Okay. She really liked him and he seemed to really like her. They talked on the phone a lot. They had several photos together, even went to a Christmas party with her. But before he did, he told her that he had some information for her. He was actually approached by the girl that introduced him to Amber and she found out that he was married Okay, and confronted him and he said, no, 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 let me tell Amber. So he goes to tell Amber and instead of saying, hey, I'm married, he goes, I was married. I lost my wife. This was on December 9th. Oh, I remember this now. Yeah. He said she was dead. He didn't say she was dead. He just said he I lost her. He never used the word dead. He has okay. only ever said he lost his wife. But that implies... Exactly. He leaves things very vague. Because because he's probably a serial cheater or something. Like he's... I, I'm guessing... I this, most definitely, I think he's a serial cheater. I'm going to say this is not his first time picking up a woman probably while he's married. So he's got oh, his... Yeah. He's got his story down. I kind of have an opinion over the Amber Fry relationship. And it's not that hard to think up. I mean, we've all been in relationships. So, yeah, we'll talk about her more. But he did say that he had lost his wife and this was going to be his first Christmas without her. Okay, But it is something to mention because Amber had asked him to be part of like Christmas festivities and other things. And he came up with lies to get out of that. So it's not like he had been planning to do stuff with her actually on or around Christmas. Because he couldn't. Because... Well, he couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> he had a wife exactly. and a baby at home. Or almost baby. And people see that as premeditative to say he lost his wife. Well, their first date was on the 20th of November. So it hadn't been that long. Yeah. So for him I don't. To yeah, like, I, I just don't see. To jump to the conclusion that I have to go kill my wife for this girl that I just met. After 19 weeks. days. Yeah. <laughs> that seems a little bit much. And I will argue that he seemed. I don't know. Kind of over Amber already. Like he got, he had uh, his fun. Yeah. 
But I think with Lacey disappearing, it complicated things more. Yeah, for all we know. I think maybe she came on a little bit too strong. That's what I understood from some of this stuff. And we're going to go into it. But I think she kind of pushed her child on him quickly. And I don't think and he, was he liked that. But yeah. when everything changed, maybe she became the only one that he could kind of lean on. And okay. so, you know, these men, they Need somebody. use whatever <laughs> they can have, you know, and maybe he wouldn't have kept it up with her if this didn't happen. I'll argue. Okay. But anyway, because of this, with the police finding out that he told Amber this on the 9th of December, they took that as indication that Scott had premeditated the murder. They convinced Amber to start recording the calls. Okay. So every call between them was recorded for the next few weeks, and there were over 30 hours of conversations. Starting on December 30th when she called in? Correct. Okay. So Lacey's missing. All of this was recorded after. He is carrying on talking to her while his wife and unborn child are gone. And he never mentions the fact that they're missing, right? Or anything. He like keeps up the ruse for weeks with her. Later. He does tell her later. Okay. We're going to come to their okay. conversations when I come back to her during the trial. But during this time, he pretended to go on a trip to Europe over <laughs> New Year's and that he would call her. And, you know, there's this whole thing like, hey, I'm in, in Paris, Paris yeah. at the Alfield Tower. And hey, I'm doing this. And. She knew that he was in Modesto at the time that they were having these phone conversations, but she played along. Correct. So they're still searching for her. Unfortunately, the community search for her turned up nothing. They were certain that they would find her in the water, but didn't. Thousands of leads came in, but many were not followed up on. Okay. Which we're going to come back to. But the police needed to move the needle. Yep. They got to look like they're doing something. Yeah. On January 15, 2003, police told Lacey's family about Scott's affair with Amber. Mm. They were kind of forced to do that because National Enquirer got a hold of something and they let them know, hey, we're going to. So you might as well tell the family. Yeah. Lacey's brother Brent called Scott and confronted him about this the next day. And Scott, you know, admitted to it. I'm not sure if he mentioned it to Brent or the police later on, but he claims that Lacey was aware of the affair. Okay, and he does say this in interviews. He had told Lacey earlier that month and that they decided it wasn't a reason to end the marriage. She wasn't happy, but they weren't done. But after his family seeing these photos of Amber and him together, that's when Lacey's family stopped supporting him. Okay. That would be hard. Yeah, of course it would be. And you know that this guy was doing her wrong and you don't know if your daughter actually had that conversation. Exactly. We'll never know if that actually happened. And would she have told her mom? I don't know what their relationship is like. Yeah, I have some opinions there. When we get back into yeah. more of the conversations during the trial, I think we'll be able to have a, a conversation. About yeah. That. Yeah. But it wasn't until January 24th that Scott became a clear suspect in Lacey's disappearance. The police had leaked that there was going to be a press conference with new developments in this case. And that was Amber. She appeared on television, nervous as could be, to tell the world that she had been in a relationship with Scott, but that she did not know that he was married. Okay. And from that moment on, Scott was number one. Hated man in America, probably. Yep. There was even, I don't know exactly at what point, but that was on a cover of a magazine. Most hated man in America. I remember it. 
if that just doesn't prove what they're trying to push right there, I'm sorry. How do you move past that? Yeah. You're not even in trial yet. You haven't been convicted. And the magazine is put out about you like that. It's the emotional thing that pulls at everybody's heartstrings when you're like, oh, my God, this woman was eight months pregnant and this guy was fucking around on her. But you know what? We've talked about it on this podcast. That's super common. Yes. Unfortunately, a lot of men, they're not getting whatever they want from their pregnant wives. What case was it? We just had this conversation. We were talking about it with the Stainer brothers because yeah. Mm-hmm. fucking around on his wife while she was pregnant yeah well, yep. he did but he was doing really it with little boys bad which... things but yes he said it was because his wife was pregnant <laughs> that made him yeah. go do that and we had a whole conversation yeah. yeah anyway so that's why he became hated and then she went missing and all of yeah. that but yeah exactly like nothing had been out there to definitively say there is nothing he killed her yeah and we're gonna go over all of the supposed evidence everything that's been said So at this point, Scott, he and his family had already experienced the frenzy of the media and hate before this Amber news because they were questioning his demeanor in every photo. Right. Nancy Grace was already all over it. He was the guy. That was it. It was the topic of discussion for every major news station. Nancy Grace is never right. I feel like she's just (laughs) this obnoxious blowhard that like just comes out. With no evidence, always. She never has actual facts. She just is all emotion. All emotion and hate. Like when she decides she hates someone, then she's just going to go after them. Yeah. You know, she wasn't the only one. She was the biggest one, I would say. But they were all acting as prosecutors. They weren't acting as journalists sorting out facts. Right. There was no innocent until proven guilty with this. As one person said on this documentary that I was watching, it was a really good documentary, too. I can't remember the name of it at the moment. But they said, you know, right off the bat, they were spoiling everyone's information base. Exactly. Because then it's hard to turn around and say, oh, no, just kidding. Yep. And it never stopped because it's big money. It was drama. Any mention of Scott and Lacey increased their audience size. Yeah. This had nothing to do with actually caring about what happened to Lacey and if Scott was actually the guy. Yeah. It's really gross how the media does that. It is gross. With so many cases. Yeah. They made a shit ton of money on this and they just had to be the one that said something next. And they it didn't have, matter yeah. what information it was, whether it was correct or not. Right. It was something to say and they needed to say it first. And yeah, as I was say, and it's the new thing that nobody else has known yet. Breaking news. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. So you can imagine that Scott did not want to be at his house, did not want to have to deal with people sleeping out on his front lawn and taking a picture of him every two seconds. So with the intensity of everything, Scott's family asked him to, you know, come down to San Diego, stay with them or at least be in the area to get away from it all. Right. So he went down there. That totally makes sense. I would want to get out of like the firestorm of people like you can't do anything. You are trapped in your house. Of course, you want to get away from that, whether you're guilty or innocent. Either way, you want to get away from that. Yeah, I would want to go be with my family. Yeah, you need your support system. He had nobody else. He was in a town with her family who is now not an ally to him. So it makes sense. And everyone there hates him. Yeah, I'd I would get the fuck out too. I would probably also be worried for my safety. Yeah, true. You know, some true. people decide to take matters into their own hands and shoot you. And she was a pregnant woman. So mm-hmm. you never yeah. know. So almost about three months later, on April 13th, 2003, a couple walking their dog along the San Francisco Bay shore in Richmond's Point Isabel Regional Shoreline Park came upon something that would surely haunt them for the rest of their lives. Oh. They found Connor. He was full term, intact, and in a marshy area of the bay. 
Wow. He was very soft, but not decomposed. There was a portion of the umbilical cord still attached. Not much, though. It was about a quarter inch, but the end was ragged. Okay. Meaning it didn't appear to be cut. Okay. Some plastic was found nearby. I believe it was a Target bag. There was electrical tape folding over his left ear, taping it down to his face okay. and like the back of his head. And there was twine found wrapped around his neck, right shoulder and left arm. Wow. There was no evidence of animal activity on him. He did have a tear near his right shoulder that extended to the abdominal wall and some of his intestines were exposed. Okay. We're going to come back to Connor's autopsy later because there's a lot to be said with okay. him. And a lot to question. There's evidence that maybe Connor didn't wash ashore at all and that he probably lived longer than the 24th. Yeah. And it's important, but a lot of the information surrounding that is widely ignored. So one day later on the eastern rocky shoreline of the bay, about a mile away from Connor, a torso washed up on shore. Okay. It was heavily decomposed to the point that it might not have been recognized as human. Mm -hmm. It was later determined to be that of a recently pregnant woman, and it was confirmed to be Lacey. But it took a minute to find out that it was Lacey and Connor because with Lacey, they didn't have her head okay, and her neck, half of her arms, most of her right leg and half of her left leg were missing. So she was the trunk. Right. And that's a hard way to ID a right. body. And all of her organs were missing except Ooh. her uterus. Okay. There was damage to three ribs, two broken and one frayed and a puncture in one of her scapulas. One could only speculate the cause of death. Okay. None of the injuries could definitely be determined to have been before or after death either. Okay. Most assume she was strangled or smothered, but we can't know that because we do not have her head. Yeah. And it was never found. So due to her time in the water and not having what they needed, the exact date and time of death cannot be determined. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. They sure make an assumption, but nobody actually knows. Right. The autopsies were performed by Dr. Brian Peterson. Just a coincidence. The police decided that Lacey was dumped by Scott on his boat trip and that Lacey had been killed on December 23rd. As a result, Connor as well. Her body protected his body until over time in the water and due to her body coming apart, eventually he was expelled and floated to shore. Okay. I'm just going to be quiet and let you keep setting the stage. I'm going to have a lot to say, I'm sure, around this later. And we're going to go through these details, so... In addition to their assumption that he floated to shore after being released from her body, they believed that the twine and tape were simply from being in the water and wrapped around him at some point. They believed this accounted for the lack of decomposition after nearly four months of them missing. We're going to have a lot to say about that. Peterson initially stated that he believed it likely that Connor died in utero and was eventually freed from Lacey's body but also claimed that he could not determine whether he had been born alive. Okay. Again, we're, we're going to come back to this. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sitting here going, where are the rest of her organs? Like, yeah. That's and we, weird. We have something to say about that too. But this is what was pushed forward in court and as the reason for Connor's state and okay. how he was found. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to actually yeah. know any of this, but there's a lot of experts that come forward about this kind of stuff. So okay. that's where we'll discuss some of this. So it was now confirmed Lacey and Connor were deceased. Scott was now down in San Diego with his family. The lead investigators, Brokini and Bueller, had previously put a tracker on Scott's car and knew where he was. Okay. San Diego is only 30 miles from the Mexican border. Yep. 
And with the bodies now discovered, they were worried that he would try to flee. Mm-hmm. And they asked if they could arrest him and were told no. But they went down there anyway and started following him around. Okay. On April 18th, 2003, Scott was supposed to meet his father and brother at La Jolla Golf Course. They had been cooped up and they wanted to get him out. Yeah. When Scott was on his way, he called his dad to say that he didn't think it was a good idea. And this is recorded because okay. they were tapping his phone calls at this point. And this is one of those things that people lied that he was going to go play golf. I'm like, it's recorded. Okay. <laughs> so, no, he was on his way to play golf. But he called his dad and he said that he didn't think it was a good idea, that someone could spot him and it would ruin the day for everyone else. So he's like... I probably shouldn't go. Okay. But then he called back again shortly after that to tell him that he thought he was being followed by several different cars. Which he probably was. And he was. He couldn't confirm it yet. So he drove around for almost an hour, almost a bit erratically, trying to lose whoever was following him. He didn't know that it was the detectives, though. He thought it was media. Okay. They weren't supposed to arrest him, but claimed due to his erratic driving (laughs) (laughs) that they were worried he would hurt someone and decided that they were going to arrest him anyway. Okay. At this point, Scott made the decision to drive to the golf course after all, and that's where they confronted him and arrested him. Okay. They searched his car as well. In the car, they found a lot of items that definitely made it seem like Scott was about to run. To Mexico. Right. That's the story, right? Right. We're going to question this. Okay. First, Scott looked different now, and that was a big thing in the media. Mm -hmm. He had blonde hair and a beard. Yeah. But that's probably just to escape media attention. Yes. That is, I I guess if you don't know anything about this case, I didn't say this before, he had dark brown hair. And he now had blonde hair. And his reason was to escape the media. He wanted to be able to just be outside without being attacked. He was the most hated man in America. And- Of course, media just ran with this. Yeah. But he had met with detectives a couple of times with blonde hair, with his beard. There's even a photo of him meeting one of the detectives. So they knew what he looked like. He wasn't trying to get away from police, just police. It was media. Okay. But he also had $15,000 of cash in his car. Yeah. He had camping gear, Viagra tablets. That's interesting. (laughs) some change of clothes he had four cell phones and he had his brother's id along with his own okay upon hearing all of this the media had a heyday with it Mm -hmm. scott's the killer he's disguised he had gear he had money he was fleeing to mexico you can't deny the thought of all of it it sounds incriminating right it's pretty damning did he have golf clubs in his car probably I don't I'm know. I'm just wondering. I'm like, that would be weird if of he didn't have Of course, they're just listing <laughs> the suspicious stuff, you know? Yeah. But I think, you know, in the media, a lot of it was blown out of proportion. It doesn't matter, though. It was a perfect addition to the story. Yeah. He did have to leave his life in Modesto to get away from people hounding him every second of the day at his house. And he took whatever he could to get by for a while. His family said that he was essentially living out of his car. Mm. And at this point, it was a Mercedes, a red one. So it's not like he's... You'd think if you're going to try and run, you're not doing it in a red Mercedes. Yeah, it's pretty obvious kind of car. Yeah. You'd want to like have a white Toyota. Right. (laughs) Or something. And the money, his mother comes forward and claims that she had accidentally taken out too much money. And so she just gave it back to him in cash because he needed it anyway. And he didn't want his name on cards to be seen when he was going places like the grocery store and buying stuff. I It's hard. For me, I could see that because the media investigative journalists they're going to like 
be able to find that as public record. So yeah. it, it kind of makes sense if he doesn't want them to know where he's traveling to and be able to track him down. Having cash would give him yeah. more flexibility to just be. Right. And $15,000 isn't that much money if you're saying. writing to Mexico to start that's a new life. That's not much at all. Yeah. And they were used to living a semi-comfortable life. You know, $15,000 doesn't go that far. <laughs> and he would be extradited from Mexico, even if he went down there, right? I don't know. Like he's... Isn't that the story of everyone that they're going to run to Mexico? Mexico? I mean, unless yeah. you're going to hide out in like the drug cartel towns yeah, on the border. Be, you become part of the gang or something. Like you are the most hated man in America. If the Mexican authorities find you, they're going to send your ass right back across the border. So or the cartel is going to keep you and it's going to be a ransom. Right. Like <laughs> that's not a fail safe, like running to Mexico unless he was going to go what camp out in the desert. I don't know. His stuff. I, I don't know. Who knows? But the camping stuff, you know, he was outdoorsy. He probably pitched a tent somewhere every now and then. Yeah, he gets tired of living in his parents' house. I don't know. I think the big argument, too, was that he just had so much in his car. And I'm like, well, he had to leave his entire life behind. Where else is he going to put that? I guess at his parents' house. They'd be like, why didn't he unload it at his parents' house? Well, he also didn't want to be around his parents 24-7. Like, well, no, not when you're a grown-ass man. You don't want to go back and hang out with your parents. Yeah, and then, so, okay, so the four phones got me, and then I was like, wait a four second. Four phones, yeah, I, I haven't was, got there yet. I was the four-phone person, though. He did sales, and he ran um, a multi-location, like, fertilizing company. And when I did almost the exact same thing, I had four phones. And that was now, like when we could do all kinds of rerouting of numbers and stuff. I still had four phones because it's easiest to have a phone number with that area code to work from. It just and is what it is. I don't see what would four phones have gotten him. Maybe one of them was to have his affairs. I was going to say one of them was his burner phone for all his ladies on the side. Guaranteed. Right. Yeah. And then as far as his brother's ID, because that was a big one that everyone brought up. His brother and his dad claim that they gave it to him so that Scott could get a discount at the golf course because his brother had a membership. That's there. possible. He had used it the day before, I guess, or something. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, all the stuff found in his card, it looks suspicious as yeah. hell, sure, but it didn't scream anything to me. And the whole reason they went there was because he was close to the border because San Diego is close to the border. I. But his yeah. family lived there. You got to have some know. more for me. There's got to be some yeah. blood all over the car or something. For it to be like a smoking gun. Oh, yeah. There is no smoking gun in this entire case. Well, that's no good. I'm sorry. You're supposed to solve this for us, Jessica. <laughs> yeah, because before this, police and FBI had searched the Peterson home, mm -hmm. his warehouse, his truck, his boat. They collected hundreds of bags of stuff to try and find evidence right. of her murder. At the warehouse, they did find a pair of pliers and his boat that had a piece of hair. And this hair was tested against a piece of Lacey's hair and said to be hers. They also found a homemade anchor that he had made. And for the anchor, police claimed that there was evidence that four more of these anchors were made and believed to have been used to sink Lacey's body to the floorbed where she was believed to be dumped. Okay. We're going to come back to both of these later on. It is important to note that they use this as evidence, like actual damning evidence that Scott dumped her body. Okay, but they don't have those but they anchors. they do not. There is not one single shred of physical evidence that he made more of these anchors or that it's her hair. So okay. they did attempt to locate these other anchors in the San Francisco Bay, but they didn't find any. Okay. There's not much to go off of, but they just, you know, they ran with it. And now finding his car in that condition... Woof. He looks real guilty now yeah, he's and running. they can move forward with it. Yep. But there was absolutely not one shred of physical evidence for murder. Wow. 
I don't think this was, I, I don't know. I didn't follow the case that closely. But and it's a while ago. Like so if you didn't continue to be kind of like an internet sleuth about it, maybe it wouldn't yeah. really, this is going to sound funny, but I think for some like some house moms <laughs> back then that maybe they remember it in more detail because it was talked about all day long. Like if you had the TV on. If you're watching Nancy Grace. Yeah. But it was decided. Theory was that Lacey was killed in her home the night of December 23rd. There was no cause of death because they didn't find her head, but they think that she was strangled or suffocated. Okay. They believe Scott intentionally put the leash on their dog, set him free so that people would believe that she was abducted while walking the dog. Mm -hmm. Scott then transported her body to his warehouse via his toolbox in the back of his truck. There, he tied the anchors to her body, placed her in the boat, and towed the boat to the Berkeley Marina. And once she was on the water and away from others, he pushed her and the anchors overboard. Okay. Scott was initially represented by Kirk McAllister, a criminal defense attorney from Modesto. Kent Faulkner, a chief deputy public defender, was also assigned to his case. On April 21st, 2003, Scott was arraigned by Stanislaus County Superior Court and was charged with two felony counts of murder with premeditation and special circumstances. He pleaded not guilty, of course. After that, McAllister felt that he wasn't the right person for the job and he told Scott's family that they couldn't afford the lawyer that they would actually need and that they needed to get court-appointed lawyers. Okay. Well, his family wholeheartedly believed that Scott did not do it, and they knew they needed more than that. Yeah, you need a really good. <laughs> I mean, he's the <laughs> most attorney. hated man in America. You don't so. want the public defender. Yeah. There was one particular person in all the craziness they have watched on TV who seemed to be the only one playing the devil's advocate. Mostly everyone else, Nancy Grace especially, was ready yeah. to crucify Scott before he was even convicted. So this person was private attorney Mark Garagos. He had been on the Larry King show to discuss the case, and he seemed to be the only one saying, hey, you can't damn the guy to hell before he has a trial type right. of stuff. Yeah. So Scott's family arranged to speak with him and asked him what his cost would be. Extended family members suggested that they sell their businesses to afford it. And I'm not sure if they did, but they must have done something because Garrigo said that it was going to be a million dollars. Oh, my God. He was a highly sought after attorney and had a lot of high profile cases, including celebrities. In fact, he was representing Michael Jackson at the exact same time. This <laughs> went It's funny on. when you said Garrigo. I'm like, that sounds familiar. And I was sitting here thinking, what other cases? Okay. I know he's done a lot. Of course, not all of them were good people. No. But he was good at what he did. And he actually believed that Scott was innocent. And or at least that they literally had nothing to prove that he did it. Yeah. Garagos was warned not to take on Scott's case, actually, by everyone. Everyone. <laughs> because the entire nation hated him and yeah. his peers thought it would tank his career. Mm. But he did it anyway. I think if you're a defense attorney, taking it on is going to guarantee you have books and things after. So yeah. I don't think it ever tanks your career. I think it can make you more famous. Right. I mean, maybe if anything, people don't use you for a minute. Yeah. Just going back to Nancy Grace, because <laughs> Kendra just rolled her eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, y'all can't see my face. I am not a fan. So Scott's dad called into the Larry King live show on April 30th, 2003. And I just want to mention this because, again, we're not trying to already frame someone for murder. if We don't have any details yet. Right. Nancy Grace was on the show and he needed to say his piece. And frankly, I believe he had the right to. She had been tearing Scott to shreds for months without any proof at all. And he said... 
Nancy, I watched many programs. For some reason, you seem to have a personal vendetta against my son. It is so obvious that you were just caught up in this thing. There's no room for innocence until proven guilty. I don't think that's your place to be a spokesman for the district attorney. To which she responded, I'm speaking on behalf of what I believe to be true on behalf of Lacey Peterson. Neither against Scott, for Scott, for the state, against the state, what I believe to be true regarding her murder. He says, you're speculating on these facts just as much as I am. And she interrupts him and says, you're believing what your son is telling you. (laughs) He immediately says, don't interrupt me. And I'm glad he did that because, you know, was a vendetta. She's a bully. Yeah, that's exactly what she was. And she lied. Yeah. And she's done this on many cases, not just the Peterson case. Yeah. And she's always like, oh, I'm taking the side of the victim. I'm speaking from the grave for them or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, bitch, you're just making money off of them. You're actually worse because you're using their death to make yourself money. Right. I'm just glad I wasn't paying attention to this case back then because watching all of this now as a truly objective person and going through all of the stuff in this case, it was also it was so cringe. Yeah. All of the discussions on TV back then. I was like, oh, anyway, he finished by telling her, you've had your say here for months and you sit there as judge and jury. You've crucified my son, convicting him on national media, and you should be absolutely ashamed of yourself. Good for him. She went on to argue with him over stuff after that. Larry even jumped in to say something about it being dangerous to jump to conclusions. But I heard that he was also kind of in the camp that Scott did Right. Yeah. She kept telling him to go ask his son those questions. And you can just hear Lee's voice just get defeated. He was speaking absolute logical sense and she was just so hard-headed and he just ends up saying, Nancy, find a little room in your heart for innocence, will you please? Don't convict him over the airwaves, please. She was just so smug in the video. Right. I don't know. Like she, she knows. Just really like she, rubs me wrong. She comes across that way. I remember it's like taking me back and giving me uh, trauma a little bit, like hearing her <laughs> because she was, she was like so definitive. And I remember it was Scott Peterson, but other cases too, like, no, this is what happened. And it's like, bitch, you don't know. You're yeah. not a detective. You're not privy to all these details but you like convincingly say that yeah and then also lead other people to believe that it's dangerous no that's absolutely dangerous and in reality I feel like one of the things when it comes to Scott and his family and her family what was really unfortunate about all of this his family seemed like really sweet normal people her family seemed like really sweet normal people yeah and everything was just getting drug through the mud. Yeah. And I feel like the media is what ruined all of their lives. Lacey disappearing, obviously. Right. Connor and their deaths. But it was just magnified by everything the media was doing to destroy and, you know, take apart every single bit of their lives. Yeah. And it changed everyone forever. Too much. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it was time to prepare for the trial. The judge for this case was Al DeLuke of Stanislaus County Superior Court. Because of the attention this case was getting and the worry that they wouldn't be able to find a juror in Modesto that didn't already have strong opinions about it, he moved the trial to Redwood City in San Mateo County. Okay. 
Moving locations was absolutely necessary, but people argue that this just made things worse because it was still very close. It was less than an hour away. Yeah, everybody in the world knew. Right. Yeah. And they were actually closer to San Francisco Bay, which was the media hub for Northern California. Okay. So it just put him closer to people being able to make it a media circus. Correct. For the defense, Garagos did represent Scott along with Pat Harris. For the prosecution, it was Joseph Richard DeStasso. He went by Rick. Interestingly, a year later, Rick was appointed to Stanislaus County Superior Court Judge. Oh, okay. By Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, oh. <laughs> yeah. That's so right. this trial did well for him. Yep. Before the trial could begin, it was time to choose the jury. This was difficult because this case was nationwide. At first, 50% of the prospective jurors admitted that they already thought Scott was guilty. Oh, shit. That's not good. So they tried looking for people who would agree to at least give him a fair trial. This was so difficult to find as well. Yeah, how? Remember, this is just all off of what the media has been saying so far. Right. No one had any actual factual information yet. Minds were made up, though. Yeah. It seemed impossible to pick a fair jury at all, but they had to pick people and they had to move forward. But it took forever because guess what? People lie. Mm. There were people with hidden agendas who just wanted to get on a high profile case. Yes, always. They would lie straight to the judge about agreeing to give Scott a fair trial, but secretly already decided that they were going to vote guilty. Well, they all want book deals. Like I just mentioned about the lawyers. People know this shit. They want to be famous. There was one woman who, after making it past the first round of questioning, actually went on to a forum boasting about how she lied (laughs) and how stupid they were and how she tricked the court. You just confirm how stupid you are (laughs) by going on a forum. I know. She was pretty much ready to burn him at the stake herself. Thankfully, someone from that forum wrote into the state exposing her. Good. But they couldn't find all of these people. Yeah. It's almost impossible. Overall, it took nine weeks to decide on the 12 jurors, and they had six alternative jurors. Now, when you're a juror in a capital case, you are not supposed to do any research of your own. Right. You are supposed to avoid the media in every way, and you're not supposed to talk about it to anyone. Jurors are not even supposed to talk to each other until they officially sit down to deliberate a verdict. Yeah. It'd be so hard in this case because it's literally in every grocery store. I know. And everywhere. And they've all heard it for months before they've mm-hmm. been chosen. Yep. Didn't they not sequester them? They did think about sequestering all of the jurors. Yeah. Which they'd done for the OJ trial. Right. But realized it was going to cost too much money to keep the jurors essentially hidden for an unseen number of months. This could be a long trial. So the jurors went home every day and no matter what they did, there was going to be some influence from the media because it was everywhere you looked. It was even on billboards. Yeah, I don't know how you would stay away from it. Yeah, it was the biggest story of the time outside of political activity because at the same time they were gearing up for the presidential election. Yeah. The trial started June 1st, 2004, and it took five months. Wow. That would have been a long time in a hotel if you were sequestered. I know. It was intense every day outside of the courthouse. Rows and rows of tents for the media, over 100. Damn. Many citizens showed up. There were no cameras allowed in the courtroom, and the courtroom was pretty small, only about 50 seats, so who could be there was selective. Outside of the family for Scott and Lacey, 50% of the seats left were for the media, and every day they held a lottery for residents to attend. Mm. Which is interesting and a little silly, but every morning at like 5 or 6 in the morning, they pulled numbers out of a box. 
If your number was called, you got to go sit down in the trial. And that means that people were showing up well before that. Yeah, waiting. So this was like the hot ticket place to be. Like, that's so dumb. But it just seems creepy cringe to me. I was going to say, there's a lot of like weird fanboys, fangirls of this morbid curiosity, I guess, like you said earlier. They want to say they were part of it because they know it's going to be historical. Right. The opening statements kicked things off right away. The prosecution claimed that it would show that Scott killed his wife because he was having an affair, didn't want the life that he had, didn't want a child, and that he was under mounting financial pressure. And because of his suspicious behavior before and after she was missing, he's the guy. We've gone over their theory, but again, they started with saying that he killed her the night of the 23rd and dumped her body via his boat the next day. Right. The defense boldly opened by saying something along the lines of, well, you're not going to like my client, but we will prove that he is stone cold innocent. Okay. Claiming the prosecution had zero forensic evidence, Mm -hmm. which they didn't. So let's get into the evidence. Okay. Just because he's a scumbag, you can't say he's a murderer, right? That's exactly it. So we have all pro Scott did it people. And then we have on the other side the he was a douchebag, but that doesn't make him a murderer. And I like that the defense started with that. You're not going to like him because I'm going to show you some character flaws. You're going to see that he cheated on his wife. But at the end of the day, you can't say he did it. There's no forensics. Yeah. And if there's no forensics, you are not supposed to put somebody in jail. But you can. That's what's so scary. And it's all opinion, as you said, Mm -hmm. and, and who you get as the juror and Honestly, I feel like they convict men more than they do women. Yeah. I'll play the like poor men side for like 10 seconds in my life. But yeah, it's hard to dig yourself out of the hole as a man. It's easier as a woman, which we'll do some of those cases too. Yeah. I think about like Casey Anthony. Yep. I think about Candy Montgomery, which is coming very soon. That's a <laughs> teaser. Like there's a lot of yeah. women I can think of that get off, but men, not so much. I guess OJ Simpson. Yeah. OJ Simpson. First, in response to Scott's affair and him not wanting the life that he had or to be a dad, the defense said that the police rushed to judgment. Mm -hmm. Yes, Scott was a cheater, but he had only been seeing Amber for a month and had only been on four dates with her, which is hardly a reason to immediately kill your eight-month pregnant wife. Right. Sadly, men cheating on their pregnant wives, like you said, it's not new. It happens. It's all too common, and they don't randomly turn to murder. No. And to the Petersons' financial condition, there was an auditor who testified for the prosecution that said that the Petersons had $23,000 in credit card debt, but during cross-examination stated that Scott had paid all of his bills on time and they had $20,000 of credit available on other cards. Okay. They had about $2,000 in savings. Not a lot, but still some savings. So I'm sorry, but that hardly sounds like a couple to me that was being crushed by debt. Yeah, they're not in dire financials about to like file bankruptcy or anything like that. No. And especially in a way that would end up in murder. Right. He still had a good job. Most Americans have tons of debt and live beyond their means. We have to now, unfortunately. Not living beyond our means. We can't even live anymore. (laughs) Just living. You're in debt. I think. But it's the American way. Yeah. If you look at the average debt carried by Americans, I think last time I saw it was around $14,000. Yeah. And most people, though, that I've known have more than that. Yeah. And they still had money on other cards, which means they weren't maxing out their cards. Right. And they had savings. Most people that I know who are struggling don't have savings, not have savings, not at all. And they miss bills. So the whole financial thing just doesn't stick anywhere. It's a very weak argument. Yeah. Based on the facts. 
The prosecution said that Scott lied about spending time with Lacey the morning of the 24th and that there was nothing with Martha Stewart and Lemon Meringues that day. They wanted to show the jury that he was a liar through and through. In fact, this was the prosecution's big piece of evidence in their opening statement. Okay. But Garagos crushed the prosecution right away when it came to the Martha Stewart show. The defense showed up with a copy of the show from that morning and played it for the jury. And sure enough, Martha and another woman were cooking and talking about meringue cookies. (laughs) So right away, the jury saw, oh, wow, so far the prosecution has nothing. They didn't even do their research to see if he was lying. They just called him a liar or they knew and just took a chance to lie to the jury and see if it would work. Yeah. So Scott's defense really did their homework in a lot of this. Mm hmm. The prosecution said they found Lacey's hair on a piece of pliers, as I mentioned, on the boat, and that it must have happened after Lacey was already dead because Lacey didn't know about the boat. Okay. Prosecution witness Rodney Oswald said that neither of the two hair follicles found on Scott's boat belonged to Scott, though he said he could not determine that it belonged to Lacey. Okay. Karen Korsberg, an FBI trace evidence expert, said she matched one of the hairs to a hair found in Lacey's hairbrush through mitochondrial DNA tests. Okay. So not that it's exactly Lacey's, but that it matches... A relative or something. Correct. Yeah. Garagos dismissed the hair found right away as well. First, there were now two strands of hair being discussed when originally it was a single hair. Okay. Which is strange. Why? Mm -hmm. Something sketchy there that was never explained. He dismissed the testing done to show that it was Lacey's hair to begin with. The defense argued that mitochondrial testing was not a reliable means of DNA comparison. Only half of the states in the U.S. at the time allowed the practice at all. The hair sample they had from the pliers did not include the root. They examined the cuticle pigmentation and medulla, and this is what they found to be consistent with Lacey's hair. Consistent, but could not prove that it was actually her hair. Okay. But none of that mattered anyway, because the defense proved that Lacey had, in fact, been on the boat oh while she was alive a witness reported that they had seen Lacey at the warehouse with the boat the day before and that they even let Lacey use the restroom that day this was someone who had a warehouse across from scott's warehouse unit it was determined that detective alan brocchini remember i mentioned him knew about this but knowingly and intentionally removed that witness statement from his police report. Just one of the many sketchy things these detectives did to make the story fit. Yeah. Because why else would the prosecution be like, see, she never knew about boat. No one ever knew about the boat. And then there's literally someone who was like, yeah, she was here. Yeah. And that (laughs) means she probably was walking around on the boat. Yes. But like, why in the pliers? Even if she wasn't in the boat, why in the pliers? Yeah, pliers don't fit with how they think she was killed. Or why would no, he have done with No, it has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. But women, we shed like dogs. Oh my God, I have hair probably It could have been anywhere. stuck to his shirt yes. and ended up on the boat. It doesn't matter. Like every time I leave my house or anytime I vacuum, it's mounds and mounds of hair. My hair <laughs> unfortunately. is... My hair is all over my car, and it, I'm sure she was in his car that he drove to go get the boat multiple times. It's like yeah. it got stuck to his shirt and then carried on. Well, and she also had short hair. It was like shoulder length mm-hmm. that was always falling in her face, and she was pregnant. She was probably constantly touching her hair as well. 
But anyway, they use that as evidence. Where's the sign that he cut this body up, you know? And he didn't. And they couldn't prove anything with the pliers because it was confirmed that the pliers had not been recently used or for a very long time. They were rusted shut. <laughs> so he could have grabbed those from his house and her hair was on it from like six months ago or yeah, something. Who knows? Who knows? There's yeah. nothing to prove with it. But it's the fact that they allow it to go into evidence. And then that's something that the jury then uses later. Oh, mm-hmm. well, her hair's in the pliers and the pliers were on the boat. But what were the pliers used for? You got to like connect it all to me as yeah. a juror. If I'm listening to it, I'm like, cool. But what was the purpose of the pliers? Well, it doesn't matter. Her hair is on there. I'm talking as a juror. Yeah, I know. Who has already decided. It doesn't matter. Her and they hair decided that she didn't know about the boat. and She'd never been on the boat. But we also proved that they couldn't prove it was her hair. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's very, very weak, <laughs> weak evidence. Anyway, moving on. Everything presented by the prosecution was circumstantial. There was no direct evidence. Garagos proved this over and over and over again. And the jury was questioning everything at that point. And at one point, they were like, well, wow, maybe Scott didn't do it. Okay. Some of them anyway. Okay. This included a homemade anchor that they found. Real quick, I'm going to touch on this. Why did Scott make an anchor to begin with? A lot of people are like, why didn't he go buy one? Why is he making them? The man who sold Scott the boat testified that he sold Scott the boat, but did not include the anchor with the sale. Okay. The anchor Scott made was not an anchor to go to the seafloor. The anchor that he made was an anchor for docking. So it was just like an extra weight that he could wrap around, put on the dock. It was to keep his boat in place. So everybody is complaining that it doesn't make sense that he's making a homemade anchor. It wasn't to keep his boat in place in the water. It was to keep his boat in place on the dock. Okay. So it was something easy to make is what you're saying. Yeah. It was just concrete in a bucket, put a little metal ring on it. There you go. He's being thrifty and crafty. Maybe he enjoyed doing that do-it-yourself bullshit. A lot of people do. They do. Yeah. And as I've said before, the prosecution thought that he made four additional anchors and used those to wrap around Lacey's body to dump her. Okay. There were photos of the area in the warehouse where Scott made the one anchor to his boat, and they said that they saw four other impressions in the boat trailer, along with a dustpan and a sledgehammer. And I looked at that photo. I'm like, you can't. I don't see anything but a dirty floor. Okay. So that's just my take on it. Mm -hmm. They said Scott also used a 90-pound bag of cement to make this, way more than what would be needed for one anchor. Okay. So that's where they came up with the idea that more anchors were made because the bag was gone. Why would you, yeah, buy that big of a bag? Correct. Scott told them he used some of it for an area on the side of his driveway and he literally just dumped some there because it was a muddy hole. He just used it to dry up some of the mud. Okay. He didn't mix it or anything. He just spread it. Now, Nancy Grace went to town with this and spewed an entire argument about it with completely incorrect information. She was yelling that he was, he's trying to fix holes in his driveway. And her words was, and pray for a little rain dance type of stuff. (laughs) For the concrete to mix yeah. with the rain and fix the holes. First of all, it wasn't for holes in his actual driveway. Right. It was to the A side of spot. his driveway. And this was interesting because later on, she and another guy, Richard Cole, who was also a journalist, he wasn't advocating for Scott, but he was another person who was you know, questioning everything. Mm-hmm. They ended up going to the Modesto home together. And they found the cement he poured on the side of his driveway. So it is as he said it was. Yeah. I mean, they, of course, are going to question this as well. 
but he said he was like, hey, Nancy, come look at this. And she saw it and her reaction was just, huh. And she walked away. <laughs> She's like, I don't want to I don't want to focus on that. It'll make me look bad. Of course. And she never went on and said never, anything yeah. else about the cement ever again. And that's the thing that you're going to see with media over and over and over again. They say something. And if it's found out to not even be close to the truth, they do this all the they time. They do not retract. Yeah. And once the cat's out of the bag and in everybody's minds, it's it's over. You like you already did the damage. Back. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't fit their narrative. Like if Nancy were to be like, whoa, I was so wrong. She would yeah, never. Right. She would never. That bitch never says that. <laughs> I'm so mean. I keep even, calling her that bitch. Even but. in a recent documentary, and I think it was like 2017, she's like, he did it. And it's all because he rubbed her the wrong way. He reminded her of like some guy who scorned her in the past and she was going to quite possibly. You never know like people's real reason for vendettas. Maybe he looks like someone she doesn't like. That's what I'm saying. You hold something against somebody for reasons that have nothing to do with them as an actual person. Yeah. He kind of reminds me when I look at him. Of Ben Affleck. Totally. I think the same thing. And, and also and they have like the same persona. If you think about it, Ben always looks like he's pissed off or like hurting. Did or you see? Like, like he just doesn't care about life. And I'm like, yeah. you guys kind of act the same. And like exactly. if you see pictures of Ben Affleck, he looks like this guy. Yeah. Ben Affleck's a whole meme. Did you see the thing that J-Lo, they asked her about it? I think it was at one of the recent uh, Golden Globes or something. And she's like kind of laughed and she's like, Ben is fine. She's like, he doesn't even understand why everybody's freaking out. He's just chilling. He's just walking around. And she's like, and then he becomes a meme. And she was just like yeah. laughing. She's it's like, it's just if you're not smiling and hopping yep. around, people have an issue with you. And they're like, oh, he's depressed or he hates his life with JLo and blah, 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 blah. Exactly. It's almost That's the what same they're thing. Saying. Yeah. Yes. They're on the verge of divorce. And she's like, we're fine. We're good. That's just my man's face. He's got resting <laughs> man face. <laughs> Resting man bitch face. <laughs> but just going back to that, it didn't matter how vague a piece of information was or how ridiculous it was. As soon as someone said anything, boom, it was on the news. They had to be the first people to say it. And one of the biggest ones, and Nancy Grace went to town with this too, was they tried to tie Scott back to a missing girl from their college. Oh, God. Kristen Smart. And everyone started to question if Scott was a serial killer because they brought up all these (laughs) other missing women in the area. And it was found that he had absolutely no connection to her whatsoever. But they just left that out there. Of course. And now they put an image out that he's a murderer. He's done this to other women. He's a possible serial killer. And then they just walked away from that. Yep. Even though I've displayed no signs. None. Absolutely. Ever. He he was never violent as a child, never violent as a teenager, as we know into an adulthood. Never anything. There's not one suspicious, weird incident or anything from his entire history up until the point Lacey went missing. He's just a cheater. They just drop the bomb and then leave and let the aftermath. Yeah. Even when they know it's not really true. Now, as I mentioned, there was an attempt to discredit the cement on the side of the driveway. The prosecution had witness Robert O'Neill on the stand that said that the material used to make the anchor did not match the sample of the concrete on the driveway. Okay. The driveway sample had larger gravel-like chunks, but the defense came back with Stephen Gabler, who was a concrete expert, and he testified that the samples were consistent and that the concrete was poured on top of those chunks and adhered to them. Again, no anchors were found. It was a made up thing by someone to assume he made other anchors to begin with. 
it was just all complete speculation, but yet it was presented as evidence with no evidence. It was something that someone decided, oh, I bet he made more anchors and that's how he dumped her body. It seems like such a stretch to come up with that idea and story with no real physical evidence. Yeah. Other than just circumstance. Other than the fact that they, you know, they're like, well, what'd you do with the rest of the cement from this bag? I get to like question that. But you have nothing. But there is nothing otherwise. Cement poured there and he couldn't go do that like later I don't think like he wouldn't have known that this line of questioning was going to be coming at him I wouldn't think no and he wasn't at his house to like go and like quickly pour some cement out to make it look you know what I mean like obviously what he said happened that's how I take it and it makes sense to me like (laughs) and it does he just had it he had it on hand and he's like I might as well pour it in this hole what else am I going to do with it right He's fixing a problem quickly and yeah. And that's how guys fix things around the house. Use whatever they have, you know, rig it up. Yep. Another piece of quote evidence was something that should have never been allowed in trial. The prosecution presented findings of a dog that picked up Lacey's scent on the boat ramp. Okay. This was heavily argued. One, it isn't scientific. Two, that poor sweet dog was really, really bad at her job, his job. (laughs) (laughs) The dog failed certification twice. And when they retested, the dog continued to fail 75% of the tests. Okay, so God knows what he was smelling. And the item originally presented to the dog had both Scott and Lacey's scents. Oh, well, that's... So it really was just Scott the dog found, if anything. Yeah. Three, it couldn't have been Lacey, according to an expert, because Lacey would have had to been on the ramp itself. Which wouldn't have, he would have been carrying her up It's there. not like he's dragging yeah. her across the ramp. Right. She would have been in something, the boat. Yes, and her scent would not have and lingered. Yeah. they used another dog with a different handler, and that dog did not find any evidence of Lacey anywhere. Yeah. But Once again, again week, week, week. They let the dog stick. They let the dog theory stay and it's clear that these theories that they're presenting as evidence even if they're discredited completely they're out there it's the cat out out of the bag Mm -hmm. and they're presented as almost hardcore evidence and it was really clear to me watching this documentary because one of the jurors was talking about it and she was like oh yeah you know what really got me was the dog and the anchors and I'm like that just goes to prove to you yeah that either you're just not all there, like you can't think through things, or you already made up your mind, you're making it fit anyway. Yep. And this is a legal tactic they use. I've seen this in several cases. They throw it out there even when they know that it can be discredited, because once it's out there, it's in the juror's mind. Right. And once again, the way that we select jurors, like these are people from every walk of life that know nothing about the justice system. (laughs) Right. You don't know how savvy they are to understand Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. You don't know that they are really qualified to be the one making these decisions. Or they're just zoning out, not really paying attention. Yeah. So it would be hard to sit for five months. Because after everything that I read and saw, the dog thing was completely crushed that was her explanation all these years later well the dog thing you know like I don't want it for me I would be scared to go on trial and know that I'm going to be judged by like 12 people that I just see walking around Walmart it's like that's fucking scary it's fucking scary yeah yeah another piece of the puzzle was it even possible to push someone 
overboard his small boat without it capsizing. Oh, this is a really okay. big one. And from what I've gathered, no, it's okay. not. The prosecution didn't care. They had a guy who fishes come on the stand and testify about catching a 150 pound fish and how it was possible to bring that in the boat. Bringing something in the boat seems different than pushing something out the boat. But whatever. The defense went further. They tested this four times. They had someone out in the water in the same exact area, in the same weather, same time of year. They tried to recreate everything exactly the same, the same boat, everything. Mm -hmm. And they were videotaping all of this. And they tried to push Lacey's weight over the edge of the boat. And that tipped the boat all four times they tried. Wow. And you're watching this video of this kid really try and when you're watching he's just trying to get this weight towards the one side of the boat before he can try and pick it up you know to lift it over and just as he's struggling to get it there that corner of the boat is taking in water so this wasn't a very big boat no I don't think I described it It was 14 feet long it was a little boat maybe like what is that like a foot depth two feet depth to it like you would see in movies like so it's a little tiny fishing boat right okay, that totally changes my whole perception because I was thinking of like a ski boat or something oh yeah no not at all it was just this little 14 foot boat and it would be really fucking obvious he was there at one o'clock in the afternoon right that's when he went through the marina it'd be really fucking obvious if he was pulling a body onto a little two-person boat well, the, the idea the is that she was already in the boat. Well, we're going to talk about that. Oh, he second. put her in the boat at the warehouse. Right. Okay. But still, yeah, it would be very obvious it's there. Yeah. So but going back to the capsizing, though, they say that he was able to do this. Now, I saw in this video, no. And this kid wasn't joking around. He wasn't trying to make it look one way. He didn't want to capsize. That was actually dangerous. The stuff in the boat could have fallen on him. The boat could have hit him in the head. Like, yeah. it became dangerous for him trying to recreate this. Lacey was 150 pounds, and they're also claiming that he tied four eight-pound anchors (laughs) to her, so that would have been 182 pounds that he's pushing off of the side of this boat. Yeah. It does not make sense. Not to mention if there was any rigor mortis or dead weight. She's dead, right? That's what you're claiming. bigger, yeah. That means she weighs even more. It would have been even more difficult to do, you know, depending on when she did die. What I find to be stupid in this is the judge allowed the prosecution to let the jurors test Scott's boat on land. Okay. So they put the boat in the sand, allowed them to get in. The reasoning was that they were going to see if a body could fit somewhere. Right. But they took it upon themselves to test the boat and rock it on land. And this is a big moment of controversy in this case because... It's not going to act as it would on land as it does in the water. No, not at all. And they're not allowed to perform their own experiments. And so, of course, the defense went to town on this. They're like, you're letting them get in the boat. They were only with the prosecution. They weren't with us. We did this testing on the water. You know, you have to allow us to show this to the jurors because all they did was rock the boat. Like they shifted it to side yeah. to side on land. Very different. Very, very different. Anyone who's been on a paddleboard knows that. It's not like your boat is going to go into the sand with more That's weight. what I'm saying. You can sit on a paddleboard. You can stand on that shit all day long on the land. You put it on the water and it's a different story. Right. I really do not think he could have hit her on that boat and managed to dump her without the boat rolling over. I just don't see how that could have happened. People argue that the video footage for the defense was a media stunt on Scott's behalf. Okay. And I'm like, no, they're trying to prove something. It's not a stunt. That's not a stunt in any way. They're trying to do whatever they could possible. Like, were they saying the kid that was doing the test was just faking? Like, 
right. making the boat flip. If you watch this, it's not. This kid is trying and he yeah. he can't physically make this happen, okay? If you think it's a stunt, him just getting himself to that side of the boat with that 100 pounds, just that alone is bringing Flipping water the into yeah. the boat. He can't make that happen. He can't pretend and <laughs> like yeah. that's not acting. That's water coming into the boat. Yeah. Anyway, the video footage is compelling. Interesting. And to me, to it changed it everything for me. When well, I was this going is changing this. me. I was just telling Jessica off mic that I always pictured it was like the ski boat. And so hearing this about the boat, because I don't think the media covered that well, is like making my wheels spin in my head. Like, OK, this is different right. than what I remember being yep. told. Yep. And this definitely changes things. Yeah. But despite all that and the arguments from the defense and the video footage that they still do have, the judge did not allow the defense's. But they had to allow what the jurors already experienced and yeah. what they did, unfortunately. But we also have witnesses from the marina okay, who said, yeah, we saw Scott. Oh, OK. Now that's interesting. We saw the boat okay. and they were on the dock. Right. So even if he had concealed her in some way, she was already in the boat. With the tarp. It was a small yeah. boat. And Scott docked the boat and he had to leave to go drive his truck and go park his truck. And there was a guy who was like, I was on that dock. There was nothing out of the ordinary in that small boat. Yeah, they would have noticed a like body shaped like very much so with a tarp wrapped around it or something. She would have taken up if she could have fit in there. A lot of space. She would have taken up an entire section like Mm -hmm. she just would have. Because if you see the boat. It's just imagine 14 feet. Like two little seats. I yeah, know like what a fishing boat looks like. There's two little seats, yeah. you know, equally spaced among that boat. She would have maybe been able to fit in the middle. Right. It would have been real obvious if right. there was a body laying there. It would probably have to be like fit in kind of diagonally even. And again, bringing up rigor mortis and stuff, unless you already had her in a position or we just don't know. We don't know when it happened, if it happened, if he did it. There's a lot of things in play here that are not accounted for. So, And how large of a person is Scott Peterson? He's, to be able he's to- quite big, too. He would have taken up a lot of that space as well. And also, I'm just thinking how like fit is this guy to move 150-pound body it into a boat? It would still be difficult, I think, for anyone. With rigor mortis. Yeah. With these weights they claim she had tied to her as well. There's no fucking way. No. I'm just thinking even to get her into the boat at the warehouse. Even to get her into the back of the truck, to be honest. To get her out of the house. How did he get her out of the house? Exactly. And what, I guess he had a truck, but where did he, oh, he put her in the toolbox. How big is that toolbox? Here's the thing. It's either toolbox. They also said that he had like umbrellas in the back of his truck. I don't know. Like, what does that mean? um, That maybe he covered her with those. The point is, is nothing fits. So they're coming up with something to make it look like he did this. Yeah. She's a large pregnant. Like she's very largely pregnant. Yes. <laughs> like she's like I, she would take up even more space. I don't I know. I, I can't picture that. And he didn't to fit into yeah. a toolbox. It's the same thing we talked about with John Bonet to fit into a suitcase. Like right. you can't fit this body. How tall was she? Like five? She was short. I mean, she was shorter. Yeah. Another big one discussed was all this stuff the cops found in Scott's car, which we already talked about. That was brought up in the same way, same arguments. He was fleeing to Mexico, you know, the same excuses for why he had all that stuff in his car. Again, his appearance was to avoid media attention. He met with the detectives. You know, if you have a red Mercedes, you aren't trying to get away anywhere. (laughs) You're really. And you know what? You're going to stick out really big time in Mexico in a red Mercedes. Like you're going to be taken down like within the first 20 miles of being across the border. Right. Because people are going to think you have money. 
And I thought it was an interesting choice, too, because before this, he had the truck because the truck is what towed the boat. Right. And he exchanged that in for this red Mercedes. But he said, yeah, it's because everybody knew my truck. Like Mm -hmm. I had to get something else. Yeah. And he seemed like the type of guy who would just prefer a sports car anyway. (laughs) And the new car was purchased in his mom's name as well. Okay. And I think kind of that would make sense why she's taking money out of his account. Mm, yeah. I, no one ever tied that together but if why was his mom taking money out of his account to pay for the car right yeah. I was like well maybe it's part of the down payment of what she was doing to help him get this car so he could be more and she pulled out 15,000 more and then just gave him the cash back I think so could be I don't think it's that big of a deal because once again when you're under a microscope like this everyday things like that look more suspicious than maybe they really are I know mm-hmm. yeah Like every now and then I get the itch to just take money out and be like, I'm going to hold on to this instead of having it in the bank. Yep. And for a few days there, you know, if something were to happen a week from that point, they'd be like, wow, what are you doing? I have cash hidden in my house for similar reasons, just for like safety. But if, yeah, I got murdered or I murdered someone in my house, it could look suspicious. That's what she was planning. They're like, she was planning to get away from Drew. That's why she had cash. There's so many suspicious things in every single one of our houses that (laughs) could be completely twisted into something else. If they want to twist it. Exactly. I have plenty of murder weapons in my living room right now. Now I'm going to think very differently about everything in everyone's house. I already am looking at my house thinking, hmm, (laughs) what could it be? Because all it takes is someone not liking you. Yeah. And we know that police plant evidence in a lot of cases too. Right. Trust no one. (laughs) Trust no one. (laughs) Except me and Jessica. Trust us. Mm -hmm. But back to Lacey and Connor now and the timeline presented by the prosecution for their deaths. Lacey, as I said, her head and limbs were never found. We just had her torso and her uterus. Yeah. There was no cause of death and there was no date or time of death that could be determined. All they could do is come up with a theory and run with that. And they said that she was killed the night before. Well, when the prosecution put a computer forensic analyst on the stand about what he found on Scott's work computer, Mm -hmm. which gave us the timeline of his actions that morning and what he did on the computer, the defense during cross-examination asked a very interesting question that the prosecution just failed to divulge. Okay. Because it didn't fit the story. Okay. The witness for the prosecution ended up becoming a witness for the defense. It changed the entire story. Garagos asked him if he found any activity on the computer that was at the house. Okay. And guess what? There was. What activity? Someone was using the computer at the house at 8.40 in the morning. Mm. They were looking at a woman's sweater from The Gap. Okay. And a sunflower umbrella stand. Mm. The prosecution left it out of their reports. The analyst said that he did include this information to the prosecution. So it was left out intentionally. It just goes to show the manipulation in this courtroom. I don't like it. If the defense wasn't keen on asking the right questions, they would have gotten away with leaving out a lot of information. Yes, they would have. The prosecution immediately tried to turn this and say that, well, Scott probably did it to make it look like it was her, a ploy to make it look like she was alive. (laughs) Okay. But never once did Scott say anything about using her computer Nothing actually had been said about it ever up until this point in court because Scott didn't know she used the computer. Right. Because she was probably up. No one did. Except this computer analyst. Yeah. Well, he already said that she gets up before him and 
And he was she was shopping later. online like a lot of us do. And Lacey's favorite flowers are sunflowers. Yeah. And this was confirmed by her family and friends. And she even had a tattoo of a sunflower. So yeah. she really liked sunflowers. So she would, it would make sense she was looking at a sunflower umbrella stand. I mean, I'm not going to put it past anyone that you could pretend it was them on the computer. It, it's not unheard of. But the likelihood of that just seems, I don't know. I think if you're trying to make it look like it was her, you would have done more than that. Right. That's and, my thought. If you're trying to overcompensate and make mm-hmm. a story, you're going to look at several things or you're going to go to like her favorite news site or I don't know. Woman's yeah. World. I don't know what the fuck and, you would have gone to. But. And even if they found stuff with Scott on there, too, from my understanding, that was the computer. Yeah. At the house. Yeah. This was back in the day when we didn't all have laptops. <laughs> But what this did is it ruined the prosecution's timeline. So instead of Lacey dying on the 23rd. Right. They had to shift that and say, oh, just kidding. He killed her that morning after she used the computer. Mm. Which would have meant that Scott had to essentially in one hour. Kill her. (laughs) Kill her. Clean up all the evidence like he's Dexter. Uh, Although if he strangled her, maybe there wouldn't be as much to clean up, I guess. But then load her very pregnant 150 pound body into the back of his truck in In the driveway. In broad daylight. In the morning when everybody's out walking their dogs and shit. Go to the warehouse and head to the bay. On top of that, simultaneously come up with the plan to let their dog out with the leash attached, leave the gate open, and make it look like Lacey had been walking the dog and was abducted. Mm -hmm. I just don't see how all of this was done without leaving any evidence, even if it wasn't bloody. Because she would have fought back in one way or another. But then where did he cut the body up? I'm still going to keep coming back to that. Her head and her hands and her legs Well, there's an argument to that. Okay. Okay. Just think of it this way. Pretend it's not Scott at all. Then we have no idea what happened to her head right. and her legs and everything. They were at different areas. Okay. So if you look at her autopsy, it's not like, oh, she's cut there on the arms. She cut there on the legs. No, they do think that that was animal okay. stuff. But that's also argued because she was disarticulated in areas and the ligaments and tendons, animals don't chew through. So there's a lot of weird things going on because the prosecution argues that, well, that's where he tied her. And so that's where it ripped off over time from tidal action. And we're going to come back to this. Oh, from the weights, the anchors. Correct. Pulled her hands and legs off. Yeah. Heads don't fall off in the water. No. And what I will say about that is it to me, it does seem like her head was taken. Yeah. Because of where it disarticulated in her neck. Okay. There had to have been blood. That's where I'm at. I see. And that's why I keep going back and forth. I keep going back and forth in my head as to what will happen. But the way her head was missing and where it came off, it just makes more sense that her head was taken before she was put in the water by whoever did it. Yeah. Because that's how you identify. That's what I'm saying. Like the I, fact that it's all missing is very convenient for yeah. not being able to identify a body. I know. I even have a hard time thinking if the anchors would have ripped the hands and the legs off to me. No, I don't think so. Because like I just said, they say that, you know, any type of animal in that water would not have chewed through some of these parts of the body. Right. It's not great white sharks hanging out right. there. And they're not there to eat decaying things no, either. They, want they don't life. want that. They yeah. want. Yeah. So I think it would have kept her down there is what it would have done if that yeah. was the case, not ripped her up, ripped her up. I yeah. mean, we find full bodies that have gone through like rivers and even harsher conditions and their bodies aren't 
exactly missing ahead. And I, I talk about that yeah. here soon. Too. Sorry, I'm, I get ahead, but I'm already lost. So <laughs> we'll so go if back. I, if I miss something, we go off and we talk about this stuff, and I kind of lose my place, to be honest, and don't know if I'm talking about everything. I try to find it, but we'll get to it roundabout. Yeah. <laughs> We'll find a way. That's <laughs> what we end up doing, I think, on most of our episodes yeah. because we pull each other in different directions. Yep. Okay. So we talked a lot about what the prosecution says, but what does the defense say happened that morning? Well, we know what Scott said. He thought she was supposed to be doing that day. Yeah. So the theory is, is that she went for a walk with her dog that morning after Scott left. Mm-hmm. She was planning to do that. And she was known for walking her dog in the morning. Okay. So somebody could know that's her pattern. Yep. She was pretty active while pregnant. Of course, there's some arguments here, but people saw her. Okay. And this is when the defense could have sealed the deal. But at the time, they made a judgment call and did not use this information in the trial. Uh Uh-oh. According to Garagos, looking back, he knows it was a really bad call. But at the time, they thought that they had done enough to prove that Scott didn't do it. Oh. Because the police work was bad and there was no direct evidence tying Scott to anything at all. Right. But the witnesses that they found that came forward that said that they saw Lacey, they were worried that it was just too many people talking. And about it would her out. Right. And that it would have brought in more doubt. No, but the whole point is someone said they saw Lacey. When Scott was not there. <laughs> right. And that means he couldn't have killed her on the 23rd. So they did fuck up here by not bringing on the witnesses. Fuck. And that he couldn't have killed her that morning if they saw her. Exactly. Oh, my God. Because there's a lot of them. Overall, there were something like 24 witnesses that said that they saw her around the area. Okay. And part of the defense's thing is, you know, eyewitnesses are not the most credible. Yeah, because they could have seen her the day before, the day, two days before. and not even been her. You know, their timing could be off. Yeah, that's a... But the issue here in why it sucks that they did not include these witnesses is about half of them from the area, essentially based on, even if it's a roundabout time and location, map out her route of walking. Yeah. And it's not like she was just a random person. She was a very pregnant lady. Yeah, that's Walking her dog. Memorable. (laughs) Yeah. And these people are saying that not only does it match her description, also the dog's description. Golden Retriever. The only people who ever interviewed these witnesses were members of the defense team. These people called the police themselves to say, hey, I saw her that morning walking her dog around this time at this location. They were never followed up on by the police. Not one of them. That's pretty fucked up. Most of them just thought, well, I gave them the information. I guess if it wasn't helpful or, you know, that's it. Yeah. It wasn't until they were approached by the defense and actually interviewed that they were like, oh, wow. That matters. It matters. So it sucks because the defense had all of these people in their back pocket and they did not use them. They Mm. even told the jury in their opening statement that they were going to bring people on that said they had seen Lacey. But in the end, they didn't do it. But it's a lot of people that corroborate that Lacey was there when Scott left. Okay. It was a huge miss. So she's out walking her dog. Yep. What I found interesting is that the prosecution did know about these witnesses. They didn't interview them. Yeah. They did know about them, but they acted in a really suspicious way after this. Instead of calling or stopping by to interview the people that said they saw her, instead they did a search and found other women in the area that were pregnant at the time and who were known to also walk their dogs and ask them if they were walking that morning. Because they wanted it to fit their narrative. Yeah. To say, no, well, you didn't see Lacey. You like, saw there's this another other woman. woman. Mm-hmm. That right there tells me that they were actively trying to squash him. it and go after him. And can they find another pregnant woman that has the exact golden retriever dog? So they tried to do this. Did no not work. Success. 
Right. And they have to be a certain level of pregnant. When you're eight months pregnant, you're really large. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. There was one woman who I saw in this documentary and she was like, you know, I wasn't pregnant, but I was fat. So I guess I could have passed <laughs> oh off God. that way. But I probably wasn't going to be walking on Christmas Eve because I was probably in the kitchen yeah. cooking. But the fact that they did a search to find other pregnant women. Instead of talking to the witnesses that correct. said they saw them like that. That's just that's just fishy crap. That's them looking for the story mm-hmm. they want to tell. And even Scott's family were like, when these pregnant women took the stand, it was just really odd. It's like, yeah, it would I feel... don't remember what I was doing then, but, you know. It could have been me. And then they're like, not one of them looked like Lacey. Oh, God. But I think that's when the defense really had a chance to make a real impact with their witnesses. Yeah, missed opportunity. But there was one thing that stopped this, too, and why it was difficult to prove that Lacey had been seen by others. Okay. And this was the Peterson's neighbor, Karen Service, because she claimed to have found their dog wandering in the front of the home with its leash on. Yeah. She said the gate was open, so she put the dog in the backyard and closed the gate, and she couldn't remember exactly when, but based it off of something she was doing before that, like at a store... Okay. And landed at 10.18 a.m. So that was really quick. The prosecution did have her testify. And because of the time that she gave, that would mean that every other witness that saw her after was wrong. Oh, okay. But we're going to come back to this because ultimately there's a better witness than Karen because her timing's based off of a receipt or something. Okay. And I get it. She probably believes that's when it was. Mm-hmm. But all these witnesses, they deserve to have a say in this. They really do. And there's just so much evidence that Lacey was out doing something that morning okay. when Scott was already gone. I don't know. It's just it's one of those things. I just don't see it yet. You're still okay. not showing me anything. If anything, you're giving me proof that it hasn't happened. Yeah, I feel like my the mind. defense is winning right now. Yeah. And in jurors eyes, that was the case Okay, for some of them. But to add to the possibility that it was someone else entirely and not Scott that did something with Lacey, we have to take a closer look at the autopsies. Yes. We know that Lacey had two fractured ribs, mm-hmm. her fifth and sixth ribs on the left side, and there was fraying on her ninth rib. Okay. Again, before or after death could not be determined. Okay. What is known is that the fractures were breaks caused by something with force and at some kind of angulation. That's just something to think about for now. Like, so something pushing N-word on her. Okay. And it had to have taken a lot of force. A lot of force. Yeah. Yeah. The puncture in her scapula was thought to be animal related. Okay. That makes sense. With the frayed rib, though, just the location anyway, there was questioning around whether or not it would have been possible that Connor was removed from Lacey. Yeah. That's where my mind's going. Peterson, the guy who did the autopsy, was kind of a jerk. And he's like, well, that's not where a C-section happens. I'm like, well, these people weren't worried about her. And they weren't worried about her living. They were just trying to get the baby, if that's, you know, the theory. Maybe. You know, I had a C-section. I know where they're supposed to be. Yeah. I just thought the doctor, Dr. Peterson, it's kind of like, it's almost like he was irritated to be there. Okay. Because when he was questioned again, he said, well, for an amateur, sure. There you go. Yeah. This wasn't in a hospital. Right. I said before that Connor was found intact. Mm -hmm. He wasn't decomposing as he should have been. If he had been in the water. He was translucent because of being in the water or in Lacey's body beyond his own death. 
And in hospital settings, they use this term as maceration. Okay. You can see this with babies that die in their mother's womb and like the baby is removed later. Mm -hmm. Although in Connor's case, it was much more advanced, but still not to a point that it makes sense that he would have either been in the water for four months or in his mom's womb for four months. So I'm going to talk about this. But this was not presented at trial. Okay. Was there, I want to go back for just a second. When you're talking about Lacey's body, did it show that she had been in the water for sure for four months? We don't know when Lacey died. Right. Okay. But she was definitely in there a lot longer than Connor. Connor. Okay. And that's a big piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. It's a really big piece of the puzzle. I mean, that's huge in any case. You got to know time of death. What is known are other measurements and findings when looking at Connor. This includes the items found on Connor's body. Okay. When they suspect Lacey died, she would have been 32 weeks along. Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, it's important to note that it could not be ruled out that Connor did not experience a live birth, like I said. Mm-hmm. Meaning he could have been alive when he left his mother's womb. Okay. And there is some evidence to show that, although it's ignored. I don't know. I just often get this feeling from some of these doctors, especially the ones that like take the stand for things. Well, you have to believe me because I'm a doctor. Right. You know, because I said this. But when they give evidence to the contrary in their own reports, it's hard. But those things don't fit their own narrative that they're coming up with or how they're or supporting they're, or the they're cops. pressured to do yeah. it. Yeah. So measurements of his body from feet to cranium was 19 inches. Okay. Meaning he could have been full term. Yeah, that's like, I was just thinking when you said that, I'm like, um, my babies were 20. Yeah. Connor was found first. At first, they didn't know who this baby was. So when his autopsy was done, they weren't connecting the two yet. Right. Makes sense. Connor's gestational age at the time was estimated to be nine months. Okay. When she went missing, he was eight months in utero. There is a little wiggle room there because as a body starts to decompose, it expands, he said, and could have accounted for the difference in his heel to cranium measurement. I'm like, not by like by a couple inches. I don't think so, though. I think what he's just saying is it blows up. Yeah. That doesn't account for inches. That's why I was asking how old they were able to say her body was because it's like if they kept her alive to get the baby to full term. Yeah, and we'll never know. And we don't know. So all of this is... Hey, what can we look at with Connor? But with Connor, it's confusing because it doesn't really add up to how a body should be acting. Mm -hmm. And what Peterson said in his initial autopsy here, not knowing who this was yet, he also said that he estimated that Connor couldn't have been in the water for more than a couple of days. Wow. This is big because even though Connor's maceration was beyond that of a stillborn taken out of a mother two to three days later, mm-hmm. his body did not show advanced desquamation, which is peeling of the skin. Oh, okay. Or mummification, which happens. In stillborns, mummification and compression is the last step that's seen. Okay. So the mummification and compression starts at two weeks in the womb. Studies were done with stillborns, including those who died 8 to 12 weeks before birth that had extensive mummification. Okay. Their skin's tan and it's leathered. Mm. Connor, based on the prosecution's theory that she died on the 23rd or the morning of the 24th, and the estimation that he couldn't have been in the water for more than a couple days would mean that Connor, in theory, should have been stuck in his mother's body for almost four months. Yeah. He had no desquamation, no compression. No mummification. That right there is crazy. 
Yeah. But this was a part that was not presented in the trial. It's just weird that his body looked like it had only been there a few days. Yeah. So even if it had been inside of her body and, you know, theoretically it washed out, like what I'm guessing the prosecution's going to say. Right. It should have still shown more signs, I would think. Like her body wouldn't have protected it to make it look only two days old. I know. It couldn't have been completely protected. That's what this is saying to me is... One, he's not showing having been in water that long. Two, he's not showing having been been in in a womb that long. Yeah, because the same liquids and everything would have stayed in the body, even I would think, in the water. Right. He's either being exposed to the seawater or he's stuck in her womb and Mm -hmm. he's not showing either. either. Yeah, that's really curious. And then we also have the items that were found on the baby. Yeah, that's a weird one. I hadn't heard any of those before. They are weird. First, we had this tape that was stuck to Connor's head and it like folded down his ear to the point that when they took that off, you know, his ear was stuck like that. Mm -hmm. I don't understand the point of that. They say that it could have got stuck to his body in the water. I'm like, tape tape? doesn't stay sticky in the water. I just still I kept finding every time I heard this really weird. I'm like, why would tape then be sticky? That's what I'm saying. In the water, it doesn't stay sticky. And it was strong enough to hold to his head and fold his ear over. No, no fucking way. I'm sorry. That seems real unlikely. Right. Does not make any sense at all to me. But then also, what would be the point of an ear being taped down if the baby had been born and somebody was, you know, keeping it or whatever? I have no idea. It's so weird. Unless we're only seeing part of what was done to him. What was, yeah. Or something. The rest washed away. Okay, so let's also look at the twine. So this twine is weird. When I think of twine, that's not what this looked like. But what the material was, was used to make twine. So it's like this long, thin, bunched up stuff. You know what it reminds me of is some of the stuff they use to like package stuff when you're tying it real tight. Like yeah. there's a machine that does it and you have to cut it. Mm-hmm. Not yeah, the, not the real thick stuff, but the other kind that's kind of more plasticky, like a plastic bag really bunched up really well together. I don't know. That's what this looked like. And it was wrapped around his right shoulder and then back under his left arm up to his neck, which was in one and a half loops and then extended and tied at his shoulder. Tied? It was tied at his left shoulder and it was tied in a knot. And then on top of that, it was tied in a bow, in a perfect bow. How do you explain that? The water's not doing that shit for them. That's what I'm... Everybody argues that that is what is happening. The water is doing that. And he got wrapped around in this. And it tied in a little bow. to a bow. Some fish are doing some craft. (laughs) I I mean, I kind of, this is the one where I'm kind of like, I don't know what to say about this. Peterson testified that he was worried that it would have damaged him. So he had to cut it off and he handed all of this to the police. Oh, I forgot to say that tape covering his ear. He also handed to the police and they didn't save it. So, I mean, apparently you just get to decide what piece of evidence is evidence or not. They They thought it was trash. I was going to say they assumed it was trash from the bay. But we have no answers to why a little baby's ear is taped over. Do they have pictures of this? I'm guessing you took pictures of the... It's not available for me to see. Yeah, but I would assume that it's somewhere. So Peterson was questioned about his theory on this twine and his response was that it was just outside of his expertise. So no response. He had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the question is, was it placed there by someone? Mm -hmm. It wasn't very tight and it didn't damage his body at all. So it wasn't why he died. It hadn't hurt the skin underneath. 
So that's another reason why I'm like, okay, I can see why maybe he got wrapped up in this in the ocean, but the bow is questionable and how exactly it was wrapped around him is weird. Was it like a material that would have been something like if somebody had like wanted to wrap a baby up to keep it warm or something like that? No. That was just the remnants of it? Okay. No. The theory from the defense was that he was maybe put into a bag that these things were a part of. And that the bag became disconnected from everything else. Like when they threw him into the bay, they stuck him in the bag. Okay. Yeah. That would actually make sense to me because then you would tie the bag off. And the length of that is kind of the length that you would picture in a bag. Like, you Mm -hmm. know how it goes through its loop in like a trash bag. Yeah. The length that was around him was kind of more of that length. Like the little pull string to a trash bag. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm. And that you would have tied. Right. That's what I was picturing too. I'm like, if they were trying to. And then maybe the tape was part of that. They're saying that's actually what the defense said, that maybe the tape was part of closing that up. Yeah. That starts making sense. And then the water moved it around. So you can't see. But that was originally it was a body tied in a bag. And just what we said just now, when asked to the doctor, you know, would that be possible? He agreed. Yeah, I guess that would be possible. Okay. There was another doctor who also examined Connor's body, but did not testify. I'm not sure why. Okay. And he didn't believe that the twine could have gotten over Connor's head in the way that it was in the water because of how it was around his neck and because of this bow. The bow makes sense. Just what we talked about with the trash bag. Mm -hmm. But all of this, if you think about it and everything I said with what he should have been in the water, what he should have been in uterine, if he was exposed in some way, if he was in a bag, then it's in water. The things that were left on his body, to me, it's saying that he was outside of her body. Yes. From someone else. Right. He was placed there. Right. Or at least placed in that area of the water in this bag. Yeah. To then be found. Right. You know, maybe it was over time. Maybe there was something on that bag that was holding him down in there in the water. But the bag didn't stand the test of time. Right. And that's what was left. I don't know. It's hard Mm -hmm. to say. It's not leaving us with anything definitive. But what it does is it leaves us with more doubt that he had been in that water for four months. Yeah. It leaves us with a big WTF. Yeah. And with everything that we just said. Then the one and only testimony that was presented to explain the location of Connor and Lacey's body when found grossly misled the jurors as well, Okay, which would have been an attempt to tie everything back to where Scott was fishing. Okay. Rick Chang, a hydrologist with the United States Geological Survey, testified as a witness for the prosecution and suggested that Lacey may have been dumped near where Scott had said he was fishing which was about a mile away, but it was on the other side of this extended part of the shoreline, a cliff or whatever. Like it wasn't on the same part. I guess my point is, is wherever he was and where they ended up, they would have had to go around this thing and then come back in. So anyway, this Rick guy, he gave information on how tidal waves tore her body apart because that's the theory that they had. Right. But during cross-examination, Ching admitted that his findings were probable and not precise. Oh, okay. That's good for a death penalty charge. (laughs) Because I think that, you know, things are just being made up here and exaggerated Mm -hmm. to make this story fit. Other forensic pathologists, including those that are considered to be some of the best in the country, sadly, this is after the trial, said it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. 
Some of them said that they had had bodies come to them that were in water for years and didn't experience that level of sea animal disturbance. Okay. Now we're talking about her arms and her organs here because all of her organs are missing. Yeah. Her arms and her legs. Sorry. They said fish and animals do not chew away cartilage and ligaments and bones and organs don't disintegrate and disarticulate and just float away. Right. Long story short. This whole argument had to do with tidal action, the daily low and high tides of the bay, wind conditions, calculations based on incorrect locations, and what is referred to as the debris line, because where Connor was found was very far inland. Okay. Then the majority of the debris that gets caught in that marshy mudflat area. Right. So imagine the water, then you have this marshy mudflat area. Yep. You have this debris of trash and stuff that comes from the ocean. Mm -hmm. And he was beyond that. So even my mind thinks, what if he was dumped? He was obscure, though, and people didn't see him for a few days. Yeah. But with the water coming up and in and out, he might have actually sat in that water for quite a long time that would have given the whole being in water in two days. Yeah. Meaning long enough for his body to have taken on that water in his state. I don't know. We don't know. But that's just another part of this puzzle here. Yeah. It is so interesting that if Scott was not the one who killed her, that her body ended up being dumped in the same same place. Like that's just like this weird coincidence if he didn't kill her. Yeah, and I have a theory on that. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter to those who think he's guilty. The bodies were found close to where he went fishing. To everyone, that wasn't a coincidence. It doesn't matter if it is proven in multiple ways that he couldn't have had her in that boat and pushed her over or that no one saw anything suspicious in the boat, like an entire body. Right. (laughs) It doesn't matter that Connor was pretty much shown to be older than he was based on the condition of his body. Right. It doesn't matter that witnesses saw Lacey that day. You just can't convince people of anything because they're already convinced. <laughs> they're convinced and they were found where Scott yeah. was essentially fishing. I'm, it's a very unfortunate thing if Scott did not kill her for her to be found there. I'm still not saying Scott didn't do it. Right. It's just that if he did it, I'm not seeing how he did it yet. Okay. Okay. But it's something we have to keep in mind here. And what I would argue is maybe exactly what happened if Scott didn't do it. Scott, his testimony of where he was that day, his alibi was televised by the police the next day. Oh, I see. So somebody had, you're right. Okay, that makes sense. Now, if it wasn't Scott, but you're the person or people who actually took Lacey, mm-hmm. when you're done with her, even if it was a month later, you I'm not go, saying it yep. was, but even if it was a month later, that's where you go put her. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If Easy it decision. Was out there. Yeah. Yep. It's not a closed off crime scene. It's the water. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different areas to enter the water. Honestly, yep. to me, that just makes sense because they're not going to know exactly where Scott put her, but they just have to put her in the general Anywhere area. Near. And yep. they showed a map on TV. This is where Scott was. <laughs> yeah, I think that explains it right there. You know, because if they're ever found, yep, Scott's fault. Yep. So it's really not a coincidence in my mind. I'm like, no, you just told the murderer where to go put the body is what you did. So they can frame him and not have any suspicion on themselves. And of course, people think that whoever is saying this is pro Scott and they're just stretching their imagination to make this happen. I'm like, 
No, that's perfect because then they don't have to come up with a way to dump the body themselves. Right. And it can't be connected back to them. And they got rid of anything that was on her body that proved that they were the perpetrator, which would have been on her head or hands or her feet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do here. We play the devil advocate. So, yeah, I, I still haven't decided one way or the other. I told you guys I thought it was Scott from the get go. But and I'm still not I'm decided just, either because Scott's a douchey. Dude. Yeah, he's a real douche. I'm talking from like just acting like I've never heard the story before and trying to react exactly yeah. how I would because these are details I haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. And speaking of douche stuff, you know, we have to talk about Scott's character yeah. because that is ultimately what does him in jurors throw out everything argued by the defense to discredit the circumstantial evidence and focus on him being a douche (laughs) yeah who they think he is yeah he was a sleazeball and he's terrible at showing emotions apparently Mm -hmm. but a killer maybe not i don't know i'm just still not convinced i don't see how everything adds up i have to stretch my brain for it to add up and typically that's a red flag to stop trying to make a puzzle piece fit when it's a completely different shape yeah but there are people out there, no matter what you say, that's the answer. And it will always be Scott did it. And we're going to stop there today. Oh, okay. I hate to do it because we really haven't scratched the surface of some of this stuff, to be honest. And there's a lot to come. So please come back for part two. And we're going to start by diving into Scott's character. Okay. And then all the other theories. Mm, sounds fun. Come back for sure. We're hitting the mark where we have to stop for YouTube. <laughs> I know. So. Well, we've already passed it. So yeah. we have to see if I can edit it down to where I have to stop for YouTube. I believe in you. Yeah. Well, come back next week. We'll go ahead and put out our spiel. You know where to find us. We're on all the social media. We're on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, all at Lucid Lab Podcast. One word. You can mail us anything to P.O. Box 251 East Lake, Colorado, 80614. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about the story and talking about what we really think. I think what we're going to show is some very interesting possibilities that have been ignored. Yeah. If they never looked at anything else, then they did shitty police work. Yep. Okay. We'll see you next week. All righty. Goodbye. Sorry you have to wait a week. Bye-bye.